0: G'day Swillians, little public service announcement here. On behalf of our partners at Better Beer, the Arvo Ale is upon us. And that means that as soon as the sun gets past the peak of its daily arc and the stifling heat and rank humidity are at their oppressing most mugginess, nothing on this planet will freshen up your Arvo like a Better Beer Arvo Ale. This is the most sessional Pacific Ale that'll ever pass your lips. Super easy drinking, clean and crisp. It's like a winter offshore in the middle of summer and it's a craft beer without the craft beer wank. You know what I'm talking about. Craft beer wank, it kind of tastes a bit like, I don't know, fruit salad and yogurt. It's like, fuck, man, if I want to drink fruit salad and yogurt, I'll fucking go and get a smoothie, all right? When I drink a beer, I want to be refreshed, I want it to be clean and crisp, and I want it to be the better beer Arvo Ale. So kick the back half of your day off in style with a Better Beer Arvo Ale. It's available now at all good bottle shops, so you can jump online and see where they stock it. Better Beer Arvo Ale, proud partners of Ain't That Swell. Ain't That Swell presents Core Lords.
1: Yes, welcome to Core Lords. Today's guest is Mike. Oblivitz, the man behind one of, if not the greatest surf documentaries of all time, Sea of Darkness. There's just one problem with Sea of Darkness, almost no one has seen it. After doing a run of film premieres in the US and Europe, the film was mysteriously disappeared, leading to all kinds of conspiracy theories about why that was. I'm one of the lucky ones to have seen it. And if you ask around your local surfing community, chances are someone is going to have it on a hard drive or Dropbox, although as Mike explains, by watching it and sharing it, you're kind of stitching him up, because he doesn't get any return on the time and money he invested into the project, let alone those that bankrolled it, namely Martin Daly, the iconic surf adventurer and early Mensawise explorer. Sea of Darkness is essentially a film about the crew of early professional surfers and underground core lords who financed their surfing exploits by trafficking drugs, mostly cocaine, to Australia and America. The characters featured in the film include the great Novocastrian, goofy foot, early G-Land tube pig, shaper, and all-time ageless Aussie surfing icon, Peter McCabe film also tells the story of New York ripper Ricky Rasmussen, whose early performances in the pit at G-Land have to be seen to be believed. There's Mike Boyham, the ringleader of the operation. Jerry Lopez makes a cameo. Martin Daly has his head and recollections all through it. It's an insane film, as good as any I've seen. Just to give you a taste, here's the full audio from the trailer for you to listen now.
0: Bali in 1975 was the best place on earth. You had to hang on to your lives and hang on to your wives. It was the morning of the earth. Now I saw traffic and billboards out there, but then it was like a little village. In 75, at the end of the Vietnam War, Bali ended up being a, a melting place. We had a lot of soldiers, the Air Force guys, people from everywhere just started to converge on the place.
2: There was a certain nihilism that grew out of the 60s. and When people came back from the Vietnam War, they were spat on, they were disregarded, their service was totally forgotten. It would be very easy to have a total disregard for society after that. It would be very easy to take a step from there into the dark side. In
0: the mid-'70s, Bali was a washed with heroin, hash, any drug you could name, surfers in those days that would live off smuggling, and you know sustain their existence in it. When you're swallowing a pound of pure ether-washed cocaine, the major thing that goes through your mind is the obvious. Is my packaging going to work? If this burst, I'm dead. Surfing's is an addiction, and a bit like a sexual addiction almost, you know, where you've got to get it all the time and you can't own it and you get ahead of it and you've got to work really hard to get another one and you can't dictate terms. It's really good surfing. I think it is that fact you can't own it which sucks you into it. That is why so many people decided it was probably easier to smoke dope and get large amounts of money for a small amount of work and then live off the proceeds and go surfing. And I think a lot of the reasons that surfing became such fast part of the drug culture is to feed that addiction to surfing. It's caused a lot of people to take dark tracks to support the habit.
1: In this episode, Mike lays out why the film was never released, laying the blame square at the feet of Martin Daly. Now, that's his side of the story, and I'm sure Martin's got his, which we'll look forward to hearing at some point shortly, hopefully. Uh, But beyond Sea of Darkness, Mike's career is no less exceptional. In fact, it's straight up fucking insane, like... This guy's made music videos for everyone from the Stone Roses to Buddy Guy, Tommy Chong and Curtis Blow. He's made Hollywood action films with Steven Seagal and Mel Gibson. He's met Vladimir Putin. He's had Eric Clapton try to steal his girlfriend. And he's lived as radical a surfing life as anyone I've ever heard. It begins in South Africa, surfing mindless J-Bay for years with no one out detours into the battlefields of the Mozambican Civil War, onto Sex Pistols gigs in 1970s London, the smacked-out, coked-up art scene of New York in the 80s, and now Malibu, where he lives today, hustling waves off snot-nosed bourgeois parasites on the daily. Well played, Mike. Full respect to Mike, he's got some shtick on him, but fuck, I loved every minute of this and saw many parallels uh, in my own journey though he's far, far down the track to me and has the wits and wisdom to prove it. Okay, you can mic? you hear me now? I got you, brother. Perfect. You got you got my, the dulcet tones of my beautiful lavender-laced voice? Your beautiful bastardized accent. How many countries are in that thing, man? Well,
2: I tell you, when I was directing country music videos... For Roseanne Cash, Johnny Cash's daughter, she said to me, "Michael, you put the cunt back in country."
1: <laughs> uh, oh, you
2: can figure out how, how many cunts there are in that amount of countries in that accent, and you'll, uh, and then you'll have alienated every you know female surfer in the world.
1: Oh, it's <laughs> an absolute cunt fest. No, nah, don't worry about that. Uh, I mean, it I- has
2: been. An- it has been an absolute cunt I'm happy to say. And I'm like,
1: <laughs> you know. All
2: right. Well, there you go. So now you know where my sense of humor locates itself.
1: Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's right up our alley. Man, uh, far out. Where to start with you? I mean, you mentioned uh, working. I want to look
2: at some of the alleys I've been up.
1: Oh, man. I can't wait to get into this. Because just looking at the, the grand arc of your existence, like, you know, beginning in Cape Town, you know, going on to london uh i think new york for a period uh the west coast like la um you know just the eclectic nature of your life and the various scenes and cultures that you've peered in on and ultimately that's all come to rest in in your ability as a filmmaker which is exceptional i I would say um, almost peerless in the surfing realm in terms of the two documentaries that you've made, Sea of Darkness and Heavy Water. But I guess it all starts back in Cape Town. So you may as well start there, man. I mean, I'm fascinated by Cape Town. I'm fascinated by South Africa. I've been there three times uh, to to, to J-Bay. And, um, mate, like, talk to us about Cape Town in your youth. I imagine it's the apartheid era back then and uh, a a pretty wild joint. I don't know if it's any less wild now. There's so much... Insane crime and dysfunction in the slums, and then you've got the the white population with the money who are just trying to live somewhat normal lives in the face of this onslaught of, of insane poverty and dysfunction. But what was it like in um uh, in your youth? Well, it
2: was, it, was, it was a different kind of wild. So I mean, I was um my earliest memories of surfing are like I was a I was very young, just a couple of years old, but I my, my well, just mm-hmm. to, to begin, my father, the origin story is my father had escaped the Nazis when he was 18, and he was born in Lithuania. Wow. And um, although he had, like, blonde hair and blue eyes, he was of Jewish descent, so, and he was the only son in the family, and I guess they figured that that if, you know, the Nazis got hold of him, they'd kill him, and that would be the end of the line of... The Oblivitzes, of which you've probably not heard anybody else with that last name, so there's, I think they, they the Nazis must have got most of them, but they didn't get my father, right? So anyway, he um, it was like in the late 1930s when he took a train from uh, Vilnius to through Poland to um, to London uh with uh, he he barely had enough money for a boat ticket from london to south africa um uh that was that his that his parents had stitched into his overcoat he was 18 years old and um like i said before luckily he had blue eyes and blonde hair because uh, and he also spoke a number of languages which i inherited from him both my mother and my father were multilingual, multi, multilingual, multilingual, or multilingual, multilinguists. So they both, my mom spoke French and English and my dad spoke um, German and uh, Hebrew and English and Russian and all this whole conglomeration, Yiddish and crazy languages. So I grew up in this household where everybody was jabbering away in different languages, which was fortunate for me um, anyway. So my dad gets on this train from Vilnius to Poland and the Nazis are, they, you know, it's right at the beginning of the war mm-hmm. and they're basically pulling anyone up the train that they suspect of being a Jew. They'd like unzip their pants and have a look and if their um, penises were circumcised, they shot him on the spot. Uh, my dad was always a very cool cucumber, cool, cool as a cucumber. He's, he kept his cucumber cool. Anyway, he was... Uh, <laughs> Very good chess and poker player. So he just kept that poker face. They never suspected him because of his blonde hair and blue eyes, but uh, so they never bothered to pull down his trousers and he, he made it to Southampton uh, to get in London, bought the ticket to Cape Town where his um, his father's brother, uh, the only other Obluets on the planet, I believe, was um, was living. And, uh but he had no money. So he had no, you know, it was a two-week two, two week passage sailing from Southampton to Cape Town across the Atlantic. And he had no, really had no money for food. He played chess and poker for food money. And he was such a good player. By the time he got to South Africa, he had enough money from all the other um uh immigrants on the boat to start his own business in Cape Town at an early age. Wow. So I kind of guess I. I guess I learned the hustling skills from my dad, you know? Yeah, he's to...
1: like your dad was like the uh the Grant Twiggy Baker of of chess and and poker, just like every win was a a meal ticket.
2: Absolutely. Every win was a meal ticket and basically you know, I love Twiggy and I completely relate to that. My entire life in uh traveling around the world making movies and such is every wins a meal ticket you know I go from movie to movie I've never had like a massive hit where I could accumulate you know enough money to build myself a wave pool or a strange brand of clothing with an obscure name you know what I mean it hasn't been lucrative like that for me it's just been you know I've been able to make a nice living in a Ford a couple of sports cars and things, but in a nice house with a nice wife. But uh, and, and you know, it's, it's definitely uh, you know every win is a mill ticket for sure, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that, those are the movies I do. Um, but anyway, so yes, I relate to Twiggy and I relate to my father, and that's the way I did it. And um, I I was uh, so I grew up in Cape Town. The first time I saw surfing was the very early sixties. I was about I'm three years. My dad had, you know, come to, my dad loved the ocean. He loved the beach. He loved to swim. And, um, he'd learned to swim in the, uh, in the rivers of, um, of Lithuania. So there there was this expatriate Lithuanian Jewish community in Cape town who were all prodigious swimmers. One of them was the, um, this guy, uh, Aaron Fialkoff. I remember his name. And he trained the the South African Springbok swimming team. So he was one of my dad's best friends. And I got trained in swimming by him and water polo and all that stuff. So we were on the beach from like, I don't know, my earliest memory, I'm about six months old, my dad threw me into the ocean at uh, Clifton Beach in Cape Town. And I was just spinning around in the water. I remember seeing all this Seaweed, kelp, and shit flying around. And then I popped up, and I could breathe. And my dad said, "See, now you don't have to worry." And I can remember—I don't know—I must—I I don't know—I think I was three, maybe six months. I can remember it as clear as bell, and um that was like my first experience wiping out. I guess you know, and I popped up, so it was good, good sign. um So I don't know, like early sixties. It must have been sixty-two, something uh, sixty-three. I could—I don't know exactly. Um, we were on this beach, Saunders Rocks Beach, which was also the name of my family house. And um, these guys come down to the beach with these big, long boards and a camera, which I didn't know it was a camera. I, didn't, I had no idea what they were doing, but they were I was already like like surfing on air mattresses and shit like that. lilos, we call them. And they paddled out to this like rock. that was about three, four hundred yards offshore and they surfed it and they were big waves that rock later on became known as the Gasworks. it's one of the early big wave spots in cape town in uh in sea point bantry bay area and it was really the first spot where i really surfed you know double triple overhead waves when i was about 14 or 15 with my brother um and um the, that was uh, Bruce Brown and Mike Hinson and Robert August. They were like filming scenes for the Endless Summer, and um, Terry Bullen had that little gray van with the ostriches painted on it that you saw in the Endless Summer, and um, he was a he was ubiquitous around Cape Town. Terry Bullen he was always ferrying the young blonde. 12 and 13 year old boys on surf trips up to Jay Bay and Ilans Bay and St. Francis and everywhere. And my dad would never let me go with him because he, you know, he said, um, I guess the same aspersions that um, Derek Riley was casting against Eric Logan were cast against Terry Bullen. He had a sort of fascination with surfing from a perspective of young male participants. Uh, so I was never allowed to go on these trips with Terry Bullen, even though I was I'd become a surfer. As soon as I saw those boards of Mike Henson and and uh and Robert August and John Whitmore, the local South African guy, was there and he started making boards in Cape Town. And so my I wanted one. Well, my dad got me a board when I was really young. Before I was a teenager, I had my first nine-six board. So I've literally been surfing since the 60s, you know, and that was my first sighted a movie camera and i got my dad who was a pretty successful businessman to buy me a an eight millimeter movie camera from when i was about 10 when i and i my mom preserved i still have bags of eight millimeter film that i shot back then right of all sorts of things so magic shows or whatever i wanted to film so i was i just was into filming and surfing since i was since i can remember right uh, but, I'm, was you know, when I grew up, I studied photography and art, fine art at uh, the University of Cape Town. I never really, um, you know, I wasn't, I, I did some surfing photography and stuff, but I was really into surfing. I didn't really want to, the waves were good. I didn't want to hang out on the beach and film it and photograph, but I wanted to surf it. You know, I mean, I was really into surfing. So I surfed, you know, and there was no crowds back then. We used to surf. J bay with three you know super tubes, like three people in the water or oh, i i lived in a tent in victoria bay for months on end um we explored all over cape town we were like the first me and the guy and my crew of guys were like the first guys to surf like the game reserve you know i don't know if you i don't know how many spots you surfed in cape town but there's a lot of great uh left and right point breaks there you know um, and there was a good crew of guys led by Donald and Jonathan Parman, the Parman brothers. They were really good surfers. And um, uh, Pierce Petard, these guys, uh, that, 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 that they were the first guys to surf dungeons. I mean, like way, way back in the Cascoliers and the late 70s. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, when I started surfing, there were no leashes. There were 9-6 boards. And certainly in the early 70s, when, when boards started getting more refined and shorter, and we, you know, we started threading leashes through holes in our fins and tying them around around our ankles with socks. But there were no like
1: we barely had wetsuits. <laughs> you know, we didn't have inflation. Wow. We didn't have. It would have been freezing down there in uh, Cape Town, far out without a wedding. I think Torquay was bad.
2: That was how it started. So I was right there in the you know in the beginning of surfing in in South Africa. You know um i mean i've I've, you know we used to take um nine foot six boards in um and cut them down i remember it was in 1968 i drove up to the, the gunston 500 competition in durban um with my friend um michael donan who's now like the chief justice of south africa but back then he had shoulder length blonde hair and he smoked like like pounds of, of pot every day like we used to <laughs> What you know he was a fantastic guy Mike, Mike was a great surfer he was about two years older than me you had to be 18 to have a to have a car driving license in Cape Town so and I was like you know 16 so he was the driver But we were major potheads back then when it was super illegal you must remember we're growing up in apartheid which is like this you know completely fascist racist Regime is—it's like if Donald Trump and Putin ruled, ruled the world, you know, with the pseudo religiosity and this moral bullshit, you know, this 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 conservative morality, and you know, just just all purely for self-aggrandizing, uh, you know, wealth-enhancing personal gain. Yeah, right-wing know, evangelical of of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, South Africa was like that. It was basically they had this ideology, this racist ideology, but it was essentially a way to make a certain group of of white politicians really rich. Yeah, You know, that's what it's all about. I mean, fascism has always been about that, and they use this ideology. They use this ideology to control the dumb masses, right? You know, so that's just how it is. So that's what South Africa was like. I mean, it was really, for someone who had some, you know, who's reading a lot, and as I was, and who had – consciousness of uh of 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 some kind of ethical notion of 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 political behavior it was really an inhospitable place Mm. on the one hand but it's the surf was so good and as a white person the lifestyle was so affluent that I, i remember i used to just go around thinking dude this is like some kind of weird Surreal dream. These poor black people are wandering around the streets in rags, and all of us white guys can surf all day because our parents are getting paid so much money. You know, it was it was it was just the most bizarre place to grow up in. And I have two, three movie projects that I want to do. There, one one is one that I've been working on with Duma Farronford. You know, Geordie's manager. Of course, yeah. The Doom is a great guy, and uh, we've been um, putting together uh, a history of South African surfing. Just because I was there from the beginning, you know, mm. so that's going to really. And, and you know, I was we speak to people like Cascolier and um, Mikey February's dad, and I mean, there was a, a, a solid, colored and black surfing community coming up in the '60s at the same time as I was. And we knew those guys, and they would surf at places like Cemetery at nine miles down on the on the coast of uh, Strandfontein by Musenberg, Gordons Bay, that area, really heavy shark infested waters, but they were all surfing. There was that community, but it was, apartheid was so divisive, you know, it was, if, if you associated... A, with black surfers you could get arrested there were beaches one beach in, in seapoint where i grew up there was a beach that was reserved for black people blacks only whites went on that beach they would get in trouble if blacks went on the white beaches they would get arrested because of the, the inequity of, of, of the distribution of punishment so it was just a fucking weird place to grow up in but it was always sunny and hot Even when it was raining, the sun would always come out. And when it was raining, the waves would just be massive because of those storms that kept up down there. It was just a primordial place to live, you know. And we just surfed. My brother and I, Jonathan, who just recently passed away, we would surf so many extraordinary breaks by ourselves, you know, um, for days on end. You you know, did you ever go to a place called Elans Bay? It's up on the west coast. It's before you get to Skeleton Bay. It's a left. It's like oh, a left point no. break. Fantastic left point break, right? I think Gig Saliers lives up there. It's really but back in those days it was desolate. You know, like um, like the 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 ends of the Kalahari Desert would like come down to the ocean. Like the same in Skeleton Bay, you know, basically desert. Like like it's like Joshua Tree in uh uh, in uh, California, except it rolls the desert rolls right to the ocean, and then the ocean is freezing cold, and it's got these fucking eight foot left barrels that just go endlessly in this white fog, green foamy water. Oh, it's yeah. extra! It was extraordinary growing up there. I mean, we knew we were surfing the best waves in the world all by ourselves. You know, it's like 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 Twiggy and you know Sean Thompson and Michael Thompson and. You know Travis Logie and Jordan Jordy Smith, all the great South African surfers over the years, and Maddie McGilvery, Stephen Sawyer—they've all shown. You know, you know, we, we our waves are just so consistent, right? We we surf anywhere, you know. There's no, you, there's no place that a South African surfer can't adapt to because the waves are so heavy where we grew up, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that's mean, you, we've got, we you know we've got everything from like. Nazare type waves in Cape Town, huge outer reef, 80-foot walls of death, to racing point breaks like J Bay or Skeleton Bay. And the only difference between, say, Hawaii and Indo in South Africa is the temperature of the water in South Africa is so cold, right? And the great whites are so prominent that there's this whole extra Thrill dimension, right? This adrenaline dimension of, of just just getting into the water. You know, you got to wear a hood and boots. And back when we were young, we started out. We would we would wear rugby jerseys and uh, and sneakers. You know, we didn't even have. You know, just because the rock dance was so intense. You know, the surfers from Cape Town all wear boots when they, you know, rubber booties. You know, you don't see them too often surfing barefoot. Because we're just used to surfing in booties because the water is so cold, and the barnacles on the rocks are so sharp, you know. So g- generally, it was a kind of, you know, manly place to go grow up in. Even for the girls who were surfing, you had to be, you have to be tough to to surf the Atlantic coast of Cape Town for sure.
1: You know? Wow, it's incredible, man. Yeah, Africa. I actually just watched uh, How Surfers Get Paid, uh, season two, episode one, featured grant twiggy baker it's the new stab series and yeah geordie smith just talking about the fact that there is no doubting that africa really is the the last great frontier of of surfing in terms of finding perfect uncrowded waves and the reason being like the continent is just so mired in poverty and uh, this post colonial hangover that so few people surf there like it's the craziest thing about south africa like the the crowds are so low compared to somewhere like australia given the quality of waves um, so i can well it's because it's a
2: tough it's like you said right at the beginning it's a tough place to live even though there's there's this immense disparity between you know white wealth and black poverty right which is a massive hangover from apartheid that they can't really seem to cure, right? There's also 20 million or so black people and only about five, six million white people. So, you know, there's a lot of white people, but there's not that many. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, South Africa is a few thousand square miles. It's pretty big, but, it's, you know, it's big as Australia. Uh, and then uh, they got the rest of the continent, which is just rife with violence and, you know, uh, Islamic state uh terrorists roaming around and russian wagner um militant (laughs) groups and i mean it's all fucking it was always like that i mean even back in the day when uh you had cuban mercenaries in angola and uh mozambique which has incredible surf was uh was a communist country and you know the south african army was defending the white interests against these. And, that, you know, that's how I ended up leaving South Africa. It wasn't because I didn't like surfing there. It was because at 18, I was, uh, you know, forcibly drafted into the army. Everybody wow. was compuls- wow. compulsory army. And that was no joke. In, in in like the 1970s, you know, being in the army in South Africa, you had a good chance of coming back without an arm or a leg if you came back at all, right? And I did my first three months of basic training, and they sent us out into these, into the desert in these trenches. And there were fucking bullets flying over my head. And like, I'm going, fuck, people are getting fucking killed here. You know, it was like insane. And I was just lying in this trench, shitting myself, thinking, I don't want to be here. Right. I I'd come, I I just spent like months living up in, in Jay Bay and Vic Bay in, tent, in a tent. And I was being surfing. And, you know, when I arrived at the army, my hair was on my shoulders. And the first thing they did was they just take a fucking razor, brutally shave off all your hair. It was like this horrible place, dude. Like wow. just full, filled with everything that like uh, a late 60s, early 70s punk rock hippie hated, you know?
1: <laughs> wow.
2: Um, luckily, I still had from them from the early days of surfing where you know because i was such a heavy longboarder back in the day i had huge bumps on my knees and my ankles you know from kneeling on those on those old nine foot six longboards. and so after about a few months of sheltering in in the trenches of you know watching i mean some of these guys would just freak out you know the, it was like 100 degree weather and you'd been in this fucking trench with your whole pack all day sheltering from bullets of cuban mercenaries flying over your head and eventually some guy would freak out and he'd jump up and there'd be blood everywhere and he was dead you know i was going fuck this dude i'm gonna get out of here really fast wow so, so um i i i remember like you know we we used to somehow we managed to smuggle pot into the army tents and we'd got break bottles you know like 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 coke bottles or wine bottles and we'd stuff the neck up with um with grass and we'd all go out and smoke it like in the bush late at night in between these forays into to death trying to figure out how we were going to get out of there and i remember looking at my stoned out of my brain looking at my ankles and seeing these big bumps from surfing and i went aha that was my aha moment which probably saved my life and i went to the commandant because luckily, my, like I said at the beginning of this, I could speak Afrikaans fluently. I had all this, this language ability from my dad and my mom. So, you know, I befriended the, the right wing command, commandant and spoke to him and indulged Afrikaans tones about how much I love defending my homeland and my country. But unfortunately, the boots, the army boots were making these gigantic big bumps on my ankles And I could barely walk, you know, and I, you know, I was like hamming it up how like I couldn't walk. And the guy was like looking at this and then he took me to the doctor and they they were all like peer. They hadn't seen anything like it because there weren't that many surfers in South Africa back in those days. Right. And (laughs) they concluded that I needed to go on permanent light duty because obviously my my little Jewish wuss white ankles weren't capable of defending the country in these heavy leather commando boots. So they dispatched me off to the, the gay section of the army, right? Um where they had all the the guys who were gay were on in light duty. And there I met one of my best friends. Um that's a good job. idea. Let,
1: let's put all the gay guys together and see what happens. A gay platoon. Yeah
2: so they put they had a whole bunch of the gay guys and then me with my weird big Swelled, swollen ankles. And they just left us in the tent all day, right? Because we were on permanent light duty because we were considered unfit for service, right? And the one guy I met there, Basil Jones, became one of South Africa's top theater designers, like puppeteer. He has a company called Handspring Puppet Companies, a lifelong friend of mine, a fantastic guy, right? We ended up going to university together and studying fine art and um, you know, so, uh, it was just, you know, circumstance. So, and they, so, so after about a few months of being in the gay tent with my, uh, with my big serpent bumps on my ankles, uh, they sent me home. So I went to university for a year or two, you know, I studied fine art. I met like, like Basil. I met this, the other great painter, Marlene Dumas, who's like one of the greatest, painters in the world today we all became really close friends and we really engaged actively in the struggle against apartheid we were all super political i don't know how we didn't end up in jail but um I, I got the fuck out of south africa as fast as i could uh i i realized that they they gave they gave me like a two-year exemption and then i would have to go back to the army and i told my father that i was leaving and um as soon as i finished university i got on a plane and I went to London and I knew I wasn't going to come back. I didn't, I couldn't go back for 10 years. I was an army, a real army draft dodger. Mm. And uh, I had a, I had to make it all happen, you know, that way. So uh, I, by then I'd done a lot of documentary photographs, black and white photographs. A lot of the times on my surf trips, I would go into like black locations or like the trans sky, which was a a fake black side country that they, the apartheid government wanted to put all the black people in this weird country that had no resources inside South Africa. So they could, it was, you know, it was basically forced labor. I mean, it was just a, 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 a slightly more humane version of how the Nazis used concentration camps to create forced labor. But that was South Africa, you know, so I got the fuck out of there. I went to London uh, i I got a job working as a photographer straight away at the London Sunday Times. My mother was British, so I had she had a British passport so I could stay in London. and uh, you know I started exploring Europe a bit. Uh, it was uh, there there I saw waves, but it was freezing cold, and I had this really close friend of mine, Anton Figg, who I grew up with, who also surfed with me when we were young. And he was uh, at music school, in New- and he just graduated. He was in New York City, and he said, come to New York. And uh, I was fascinated with uh, um, New York art. I'd studied art. I did a little bit of studying in London, photography, and tried surfing there. It was fucking freezing cold. I couldn't stand it. And uh, um, I knew about guys like Ricky Rasmussen, so I knew there was some kind of waves in New York
1: and uh what are you doing oh no go ahead just turning uh turning the heater off it's a bit noisy ah uh, all right and then uh
2: um and then i uh i i you know i took a plane to new york city i you know i was, I'd already in london i saw the sex pistols do their first concert at the 100 club and uh, i knew about the Ramones. And Patti Smith, that, that 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 had started to emerge in New York City. Remember, there's no internet in those days. Hold right? on, hold so, on.
1: Let, let's press pause on this Sex Pistols gig for a second, because uh, that was yeah. yeah. I, I saw that you you did go to university in London, uh, or, or were working in yeah, London, yeah. and it was the you know the, the mid '70s. Uh, so you've got that beginnings of, of punk rock music, uh, namely the Sex Pistols, basically the the Godfathers of the genre um you know johnny rotten's one of my all-time idols and and gurus uh an irish laborer piece of shit fucking you know absolute shit kicker uh whose entire body of work and music was just a piss take of the class system and the the, the ethos of which very much survives in this podcast talk to us about seeing the sex pistols Live and uh, yeah, just that culture at well, the well, time.
2: But the bottom line of all of this is, is you know, growing up in South Africa, we had only local rock and roll and incredible black music, right? Dollar Brand, um, Lady Smith, Black Mumbaz, all those great black music bands. But we were really politically left wing and active in South Africa, right? Because we were anti-apartheid. And we saw all these big 60s guys like Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones as being sellouts, right? They're all made hundreds of millions of dollars. And they looked like a bunch of kooks to us, frankly. You know, they were, uh, you yeah, know, they were just like radio FM music for the masses posing as radicals. And it was all bullshit. Right, they. As far as we were concerned, they'd ripped off black artists. They mm. all, all their music, and all their music came from the black blues. Everybody mm-hmm. from Bob Dylan on down was a fucking cultural thief and an appropriated music. I love it. And <laughs> they all made a fuck of a lot of money by stealing from black musicians. And just to jump ahead, later on, when I became a big music video director in America. I felt like I was one of those black musicians because we got paid fuck all to do music videos in the early days of music video. They never put our names on the videos. We never got any royalty checks. And those videos are still playing on YouTube with 10, 20 million uh, followers and we don't get a penny for them, right? And and that's exactly how I imagined all those early black blues guys felt, right? Mm. So... There was nothing political, you know, about Bob Dylan or the Stones or any of those guys by the time that I arrived in London. They were, you know, I remember going to see Eric Clapton. He was so smacked out. He could barely stand up. You know, he would fucking just look clapped like, out and smacked out clappo What a dog. He just looked like an absolute fucking degenerate with a hundred million dollars in the bank. And- uh His band were the ones playing. I mean, he was just slobbering around on stage, (laughs) drooling. I mean, he looked like a fucking moron. Later on, I got to work with him. I did a video with him and Carol King. He was already sober by then. And he just struck me as an absolute conservative right-wing capitalist, which they were. These guys had made so much money. They had transcended from the... uh, Uh, the left-wing hippie political classes into the, you know, the moneyed elites of capitalism. That's what they they were. I I would have, I guess if I'd made $100 million stealing music from black people, I'd be part of the, the bourgeois capitalists too, but that didn't happen. So reading, you know, hitting London in like 75, 76, and like reading these like, Again, there's no internet, so there's just these amazing one-sheet newspapers that are being, you know, all over the place, like, with pictures of of spiky-haired kids with safety pins in their necks and, you know, weird tattoos, and um, to me it was all led by uh, um, a guy called Genesis P. Orange, who later on had a sex, some kind of sex change. uh, uh, Genesis Porridge? uh, Yeah, Genesis P. Ridd, right? Love that. Total genius, and he is like psychic revolution, right? And there was, you know, there was the movies of Jean Luc Godard. There was just so much active um, anti-capitalist agitation going on. There was the Red Brigades were blowing up fucking airports and shooting people. You know, it's weird. All of this right-wing terrorist tactics now are basically adopted from the ultra left you know radicals from that period right which is just you know as you get older you just realize what a mess Mm. you know culture and mankind is right it's just really surreal Mm. how 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 fucked up the trajectory of history is and how you know things just uh, you know move and change in this weirdly plastic way and you know in london not only was i getting turned on to punk rock at university i was studying with peter Waller, who wrote a book called signs and meanings in the cinema and he was a radical left-wing cultural theorist and uh he introduced me to michelle foucault and roland Barth and uh um christian metz and all of these radical left-wing thinkers right mm-hmm. and uh uh, uh Peter had also written the screenplay for Michael Antonio uh Michelangelo Antonioni's movie The Passenger and he was a super left-wing filmmaker making these radical anti-commercial <laughs> movies so I got with his um wife at the time Laura Mulvey and I really loved these people They were so radical and so intellectual and uh you know it was just like and, and, and punk rock was happening and you know, there was this attack on the upper classes and people, you know, people were squatting. We would find these, remember I'm in my early 20s, right? My shoulder length hair and I used to, I used to wear a, a, an old army surplus uh, pilot's jumpsuit that, that my girlfriend at the time had embroidered flying on the back, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we were just fucking flying, dude. It was That's radical. It's so good. Uh, so and, it was good. Great... and I had and I was always photographing and shooting Super 8 film all the time. I have like somehow, you know, thank thankfully capitalism provided me with enough money that I have a massive studio in the back of my house just where I'm archiving all this shit and cuz I've been working non-stop my whole life like I said I had to go from one meal to, to another I never really had I had a couple of gallery shows I was in the Museum of Modern Art and shit like that Wow! and they bought some of my stuff in New York and that but I really just like to keep working you mm. know so now that I'm in my like old age I'm starting to archive the stuff and uh you know I found a like a really hip young gallery owner, this guy, Stevie Dreer, you know, he's like, he, he rep, he represents dead cook surfboards in uh, Los Angeles. And he has a, an art gallery, him and Luke Carlson, Luke Cheadle, called uh two to two to three fair. And they do really extreme cutting edge art shows. And so I think we're going to start unveiling some of my, uh, crazy artworks you oh, know i've always please. been
1: love that i know you know, I've always
2: been, I, you know luke right
1: yeah he's a well uh i don't know if we've met but i know who he is he uh i believe he's you know kind of like a pro junior level surfer here yeah, in australia surfer, really yeah, good yeah good really good surfer
2: a really interesting guy anyway so they got a cool buzz going into their place and uh because i have you know because i came from that generation who were like really you know boundary breaking punk rockers you know we were all into like Crazy sexual exploration, you know, like the Robert Mapplethorpe was our kind of guru, you know. Like and you know, I did a lot of S and M photographs. It was all it was all part of that uh, Vivian Westwood look, you know, wearing vinyl and uh, you know bondage outfits and all that stuff. It was a complete revolt against all the fucking navel gazing hippie bullshit, you know, yoga hippie bullshit, right? Mm. I mean, we were hardcore, you know? I mean, I guess they uh, they traded cocaine for crystal meth or something in my generation. I mean, there used to be like bags of fucking crystal meth all around London. That's all like, I can remember <laughs> that. Just like fucking craziness going on for days on end and like, you know, like pogo dancing and all this, you know, these incredibly violent sex pistol con- concerts, drunken madness, um It was, ex- I mean, seeing Johnny Rotten on stage the first time was nuts, dude. With these spiky orange hair and these, like, ripped up old dirty stank sewer sweater that he, you know, it was like, dude, it was nuts. The thing but like, it was such a great yeah. energy to be part of, you know, like, imagine coming out of Dour, hippie, uh, left-wing apartheid South Africa, right? Art world, intellectual... Surfing, yoga, you know, I was definitely rolling to yoga and all that shit back then. And then I just hit London and this fucking, you know, it was like, uh, sympathy for the devil, you know. I mean, even the Rolling Stones were, everybody was getting reborn by this shit, you know. Mm. Punk rock, punk rock, I think, is what made Keith Richards who he was, you know, he had to see people take what he was into and turned on itself, you know what I mean? And make it edgy and really edgy. Yeah. It's like
1: like, like the Billy Bragg lyric, you know, which side are you on? Like the idiocy and the injustice of the class system is so in your face in every uh, colonial white society that like you have to choose a side. So which one is it going to be?
2: And that's, that's what happened later on with, when I did sea of darkness, you know, I was not prepared to make the great white, colonial explorer movie right which is what martin wanted and that's the reason why sea of darkness has never been released you have it right there i just told you yeah right it's because of that because i'm not defending fucking white colonialism and and the rape of uh uh, of of indigenous people's lands for profit right i'm gonna tell like it is yeah there were a bunch of fucking you know hippie surfers who survived of drug dealing so that they you know they were absolute narcissists that was what they did. you know, surfing is the most narcissistic sport I mean, it serves no other function other than pure pleasure. you know yeah. it's like it's like going to an orgy, right? What are you going to an orgy to change the world? No, we're going to an orgy to have pure pleasure, right? surfing is that orgy of pure pleasure, right, and uh all the petty jealousies, all the petty. Um, cultural, colonialist attempts at appropriation and aggrandizement of the individual self against the the whole. They all take place in surfing. You go to a crowded day at First Point Malibu, or I'm sure at Kira, or uh, Bondi, any beach where there's like a hundred surfers in the water, and you'll just see the society writ small manifesting itself in every violent fucking outburst, right? And that's... (laughs) That's the beauty and the tragedy of the whole thing.
1: 100%, man. It, it's so true. And, you know, when you mention uh, just the the endless mire of bullshit that is kind of modern society, uh, particularly in, in the white kind of capitalist colonial realm, like at the end of the day, all of this, whether you're a Marxist rebel blowing up bridges or a, a right-wing capitalist fascist keeping the the blacks in South Africa down – It's all just manifestations of the ego. And and in our culture, in the the white kind of uh, materialist reality, there's just no thought or or work done to to dissolve and sand back the ego. So egos just run wild and it becomes this, uh, this, this, just dogmatic divisive world that we live in. And it's been that for so long. It's just two egomaniacs, whether they're left or right wing, you know, as the American Indians say, the left and right wing are part of the same bird. Um, They're just two dogmatic ego driven states of thinking at war with each other. And surfing is that on an individual level because it's, it's, it's me versus you in the lineup and uh, I, I want this resource and I'm going to get this resource over you. I'm not going to give you this resource. So yeah, that the human ego man, when left to its own devices, just spirals constantly and consistently into this state of war with one another. With whoever uh, is competing for your resource. That's basically what it boils down to. It's that simple. But then you see the other cultures. Oh, no, it's what,
2: it's what Jean, Jean-Luc Godard said in the mid-70s. Uh, you know, there's like, he said two really amazing things. He said uh, movies have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, just not necessarily in that order. And he said the left and the right have become uh, interchangeable with each other at this point in society. You can't take a side against Uh, a a left or a right, because they're both replications of each other politically, right? And uh, obviously, there's degrees of of that that you can measure and and assess. But ultimately, I think that's what gave birth to the really great postmodernist philosophers like uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari from France, who wrote this book, Anti-Oedipus. If you haven't read Anti-Oedipus, that should be your Bible, you should read that book, and it will tell you that there are no Bibles, and that's what you want. It's the anti-Bible, right? You mm. want to understand how the uh, the um, the the biological flow of culture is just like a pulsating mirror of of of, of how all organisms work and how viruses change and mutate and. You can't just take sides anymore because you're living in a mutating viral world like, you know, William Burroughs in The Naked Lunch said language is a virus. Right. And it's a virus used to control. And that controlling virus mutates and changes. And it's no surprise we have fucking COVID. You know, of course, COVID is fucking real. It's as real as it's unreal, just like every other controlling thing in our society. Is both real and unreal, and now you have this fucking moron Donald Trump, you know, standing up there, going, "Well, it's all lies." And you know what? He's telling the truth. It is all lies, except his truth is the lie, right? (laughs) So, putting yeah, a great point. Put this fucking massive fat capitalist load of blubbering shit in prison for life. Why not, right? He lived in a fucking mansion for 60 years with hundreds of billions of dollars. Let him experience the dialectical antithesis of its all lies, right? (laughs) The whole idea behind living the revolutionary, viral, feral life is to be able to mutate and change and keep ahead of ambition, desire, ego, all of these things that are going to pull you down and eventually trap you so that even if you're the great um, profligator of alleged freedom like Donald Trump, you're going to end up in a fucking courthouse like he is today. Because getting back to Bob Dylan, who I shit talked earlier, he did write in one of his early songs, sometimes even the president of the United States has to stand naked. And he did write that. He was a punk rocker. He started out as a punk rocker, you know. He just well, went too rich.
1: yeah, influenced by it, no doubt. I mean, how could you not be uh being in those parts of the world like New York in in the seventies? Um, man, well, he tw- was
2: just imagine, imagine he was in New York in the fifties and early sixties when they had no fucking money, right? And nobody knew this whole thing was going to blow up, right? And that's when he wrote lines like, "Sometimes the president of the United States has to stand naked because they were just." looking down the barrel of a fucking gun, you know, pointed at them by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. And they really did blow the whole thing up. And what we're seeing right now in all this chaos all over the world is, yeah, this is what the, this is the consequence of 1968's revolution. It's all fucking blowing up. This fucking moron, Vladimir Putin, who I once met with Steven Seagal, you know, like desperately trying to hang on to power when you, I've actually seen these people. I mean, Putin's like a fucking, you know, four foot 11, maybe five foot three. Wow. Like little dwarf with piercing blue eyes, desperately overcompensating for his two inch cock. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's what it's all about, man. It really you is, know? yeah. Read, read Sigmund Freud. He wasn't, you know, you that's... know, fuck all this fucking feminist chatter, this divisive shit. You know, everybody needs to have their little tight categories that they can put their ideas in their little package. You know, so they can be all woke and you know worry mm. about you know whose indigenous land they've stolen. And you know, you know we are we are surfers on I don't know how to say it in uh, in uh, in uh, um in indigenous Australian land but, You know, we are surfers on Wollongong land or whatever they say, right? Mm, mm, mm. And uh, they admit that. But I don't see any of them giving back their thirty million dollar mansions to exactly, the mate. original inhabitants exactly. of Molongan that, Land.
1: That's <laughs> what it's all about. That left-wing politics can be so easily distilled, and really, what it's about is the redistribution of wealth. It's all that's all it's about. All the woke politics. And nobody's fucking. And nobody's redistributing the wealth, of course. <laughs> and they're never going to talk about redistributing the wealth, and that'll never become a mainstream Guardian-backed uh left-wing idea these days like that was part of the old left that the billy bragg the sex pistols um eras you know it was all about socialism trade unions redistribution of wealth very simple messaging uh and now that's been been completely lost in this miasma of horseshit around woke identity politics where the left has been fractured into a million competing little victim particles um, and, and it just doesn't need to be that complicated, but
2: this but, is why you need to study post structuralist post-modernist writers, like, like, um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari and Paul Virilio who wrote about war and, 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 Jean Baudrillard, uh, there was a magazine that I worked, um, in, uh, that I, that I edited with Catherine Bigelow at Columbia university called semiotext, uh, that was published by this great genius and my huge mentor, who's also passed away now, Sylvain L'Atrangeur. And he really taught us about this uh, the viral nature of all these ideas. These ideas would mutate and change. And, you know, you're always teetering on the brink of darkness and disease and catastrophe. And this kind of utopian notion that there's some wonderful new universe that we're going to have is all fucking bullshit, you know? Mm. Find yourself a fucking tent near a good warm water point break. Make sure there's no Russian fucking developers around, and go <laughs> fucking surf. You got the internet; you can make work anywhere. You know, uh, uh, you know. There was there was a lot <laughs> in the ideas of Mike Boyum and Martin Daly that were very inspiring. It's just the utopian nature of that kind of dream is just not viable in this world where you know the nature of nature is to destroy and destruct. I mean those you know and capital those, those those wild animals that that you know that that crawled through the jungle at G Land late at night, right? They're all over the fucking place. Dude. <laughs> You know yeah. that's the nature of nature. Hey, listen, Jed, I need to hit the heads quickly. Can yeah, man. we go for it. Can we just stop for a second? You want me yeah. to keep us rolling? Yeah, yeah go, go for it, man. Speak. I'll do the same. Okay. You, you know what I'm thinking, right? Because it's like two thirty, and mm. I have to be at a film to tape transfer on this music video that I just shot in half yep. an hour. Do you want to pick it up tomorrow and let's talk about? Surfing and documentaries. I've got a lot to talk about the Sunny Garcia thing because mm. the Sunny Garcia documentary is really focusing on everything we've discussed yeah, and man. the kind of fractious, the fractious nature of uh, surf industry and and colonialism and uh, the exploitation of indigenous surfers. Right. Yeah. The fact that Kevin Slater would never ever allow me to do an interview with him for the Sunny Garcia movie, even though he is like. Uh, supposedly was Sonny Garcia's close friend, right? Sonny and I tried so many times. Right there between the the dialectic between Kelly Slater and Sonny Garcia is you have the key analysis of the kind of punk rock understanding of corporate capitalism and surfing. Right there between those two people is where I see it like located. Sonny was really aware of that. And I have amazing interviews where he talks about that. And, and the exploitation of, of, of his career and the fact that he was a person of color and how Kelly Slater won his titles by default. I mean, you've got to listen to this shit. It's like, so I think I have, um, I'm getting, you know, the problem with the Sonny Garcia documentary is it never ends because Sonny Garcia's life is just this perpetuating, extraordinary um, narrative of, of, of revolted antagonism. Even to this day, you've seen the, free sunny garcia to instagram right haven't you i don't think i have sorry all right so this is your homework to do and then we can pick it up tomorrow go look at at sunny at free sunny garcia two because i already had one shut down and you will read in the public domain all of the stuff that that i've known about for the last few years since sunny's demise but i didn't want to Address publicly, even though Derek and them would ask me about it, because I don't want to get into a lawsuit with mm. uh, that woman. But now it's like in the public sphere, and uh, which really allows me to probably
1: take the documentary
2: through its third act, you know. So I'm yeah. still actively working on that. It. Yeah, you know, it's oh, going to be incredible,
1: man. Incredible. Yeah, there's yeah. so much more in your career I want to talk about. Uh, so yeah, love to. That's what John- I'm
2: thinking. It's like I'll never get it done, and I, and I, I've got to drive all the way to fucking Beverly Hills, and I got my.
1: The, the swell's
2: one foot, and I got my fucking longboard on the top of the car, and I'm going. Where the fuck am I gonna park this fucking thing? And I'm just anyway, whatever. So let yeah. me let me go deal with all the shit that I've got to deal with, and then if you want to, we we just pick we'll pick this up. Send me a new invite for tomorrow, and we'll pick it up tomorrow. Tomorrow, like at one o'clock or whatever.
1: Okay. Perfect. Yeah, it might just have to be
2: a little bit later.
1: Um, just but yeah, just let me know. All right. Just
2: just let me know. I'll I'll am out the surfer. You know, I just. You know, while the strike is going on, I just sort of plan my life around surf sessions, you know, even if I have to go and, you know, fuck up a few guys at like uh, First Point Malibu. Some fucking cunt wrote kook on my window of my Ford Bronco in wax the other day. Me and the local boys trying to find out who the fuck it was. It must be someone that I burnt. (laughs) (laughs) I burn a lot of people. Listen, when you get to my age, if you're my age and you can still fucking surf, you can burn who the fuck you want. (laughs) That's the way I see it. I'm yeah. looking at these fucking cunts, these like little, you know, 18 to 25 year olds. I'm going, dude, I'm 70 and I'm still fucking dripping, okay?
1: Yeah. You know what you you're going to do when you're
2: 70? You're going to be like a fat fucking pig with a heart attack with six stents because there's only three of us in the fucking water here. And one of them's Alan Sala and the other's Andy Lyons, right? So you know how good we could surf when we were your age, you fucking kooks. <laughs> Dude, the Malibu thing, this whole Hollywood entitled shit. I could, I could give a podcast just talking about those assholes.
1: Oh, I can imagine, mate, how radical a place that is. Fire out! That's insane. Yeah, the the level of wealth and and privilege and the the weird social matrix that accompanies that. Yeah. Uh, that realm. And they all
2: they all dress like they poverty stricken sixties hippies, driving around in their beat up van like vans. You know, sounds like Byron. You know, while they get oh, that was exactly like fucking Byron, dude. I spent a lot of time. I, I surfed the pass with Peter McCabe. It was one of the best surf sessions of my fucking life. No way. Dude, getting, barreled, getting barreled backside of the pass, like with Peter paddling up the wave. It was when we were doing Sea of Darkness, and I went, fuck, Peter McCabe just saw me get a backhand barrel. And he came to me and said, You surf pretty good, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I took that mate. as one of the best compliments
1: of all time. Right? Are you serious? Getting getting worded up by Peter McKay, mate. That is our peak. No, Peter. Right
2: but Peter wanted to do wanted us to go together on a wave and do go behinds, and I checked it out. I thought I can't do this with fucking Peter, dude. He's too good, you know. I uh, mean, he's just one of the greatest surfers of all time.
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent. One of the most, the greatest
2: call lords of all time. <laughs> legendary yeah. motherfucker dude that that legendary guy that uh, he what really made sea of darkness a great movie was meeting peter mccain right he just turned the whole thing around and he hooked me up with jeff chitty and you know we really got deep into the mike boyam thing and i think that's when i kind of lost martin daly's confidence you know and it, it wasn't going to be a movie about the great white explorer and it was going to be a movie about drug smuggling
1: mate I'm, I'm so glad it was that that film because it, it was so omnipresent the the drug trap the people in my own family are exactly from that era and tied up in the same nefarious activities it was everywhere in the 70s everywhere. and 80s in australia you, you couldn't go to a beach without finding a handful of traffickers so um no, dude, it, i used
2: to go i used to go surfing hawaii i go down the beach and so these are still some of my closest friends to this day you go down to the beach i won't even name the beach or anything because i went there and you you know you have a good session and afterwards it'd be a, you know, your buddy would have a big bottle of blow in the, in the fucking car. And you would do a few lines and do those are some of my greatest memories. All right. Listen, Jed, let me go. Cause I don't want to be late for the yeah, session mate. that I'm playing.
1: I'll speak to you send tomorrow. A,
2: yeah. Send me a thing. We'll, we'll carry on this, this story. Give me a transcript of this. So I could write my autobiography.
1: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I'll, uh, well, fuck. I I'm not typing up a transcript, but I'll, I'll get no, some, uh, just you go. Just
2: give me a send me the tapes and I'll
1: find something I uh, That's a hundred percent possible. I can definitely do that, mate. Uh, I'll speak to you tomorrow and uh, yeah, take yeah, care of the roads out to there. It. Unreal, yeah. go on,
2: glad you're a radical left wing fucking radical kook. I love it. <laughs> All right. That's right. we we'll, right. We'll, we'll 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 search and destroy more next week. Okay.
1: Excellent, uh, mate. Not tomorrow.
2: All, All right.
1: right. Ciao. See you, brother. Bye. Now for part two of our chat with Mike Obolowitz. What time? What time is it in your neck of the woods? It's uh, six a.m.
2: Goodness gracious! Hold on, I've got to eat my breakfast. Then hold on. <laughs> um, six a.m. Have you been up all
1: night? No, no. I just woke up this morning at five and got the fire going. Did a bit of Wim Hof.
2: And uh, yeah, it's freezing cold out. Where are you? Which part of the world of Australia?
1: Oh, I'm up near Ballina, so uh, just, just west of Ballina. Um, yeah, yeah, so
2: that's like near, uh, like you know, on the Gold Coast, there, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, about an hour south of the Goldie, yeah.
2: So, my, my really old friend Gunter Rahm lives in in Ballina, you know, Mate, the it's... surfboard shortly.
1: It's funny you say that because uh, I was talking about you, yeah, chatting about this interview, and my mate was uh, glassing your boards here actually through Gunther. Oh, yeah, because
2: yeah. I get all my because Gunther and I have been friends since we were about 10 years old.
1: That's crazy. Gunther's from uh... Cape Town, yeah. So Gunther's from Cape Town, too. Gunther's an iconic shaper man. Wow,
2: well, you know, I don't ride pieces of shit, bro <laughs> <laughs> when you've been surfing as long as I do. I mean, you know, i i'm 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 putting my life in those boards hands I mean you know those are my like he shapes me my like my boards for Hawaii and stuff you know like really he shapes really good um i'm I wouldn't say I ride big waves, but for me big you know like like six foot sunset you know, and, yeah. you know that's pl- plenty big for me um or pipe or um rocky point I mean his boards fly on the north shore he spent a lot of time on the north shore, you know. So yeah, he's a real, really great shaper. I mean, he shaped me a seven ten. I got a couple like, a, I mean, I have them all the way from like six six three up to, I think the biggest one's like eight two. You know, oh, and mental. incredible boards. You know, for an old man, he knows just how to get the right thickness so that they they buoyant enough to paddle. Uh, you know, and then he like you know he gets these great rail lines so that you can still turn them. Um yeah, he's he's a fantastic shaper.
1: He's a but genius. Ro-
2: dig this, Robbie Robinson of the band just died.
1: Right. Remember the
2: band I, you remember the band, you know? I was never that, into that- the
1: band. I don't know the band. Tell us about the band.
2: You know the band? I pulled into Nazareth. I was feeling about Hot Boss dead, just needed a place where I could lay my head. Hey Mr. Can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and he shook his hand and read And he's knows all he said. You know they that are. song, Take a Load of Annie, Take a Load for Free? Oh, a
1: yeah, load of course. One. I you know, put the a load right
2: on you. It's only one of the greatest songs ever written, of right? Of course.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the band. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, like, yeah, you I, know,
2: know I mean, it's not this bullshit that your fucking young idiots do today, your young cunts. <laughs> talking, you know, it's a uh, fucking note. I mean, Dude, Robbie Robertson was Bob Dylan's uh, guitar player for uh, uh, most of the '60s and early '70s. Wow! Uh, Him, now the band is one of the most iconic rock groups of all time. Man, you know they were all heavy heroin takers. You know, like um, a needle in each arm. Uh, So none of most of them are dead now. I think there's only. I think there are only two living. Like let's see, Levon Helm, the drummer, is dead. Richard Manuel is dead. Rick Danko is dead. Uh funnily enough, the one who's still living now, the lot is the, the 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 organ player, Garth Hudson, who was the oldest member. Because he was he was this weird kind of kind they're all from like weird extreme parts of Canada and um the backwoods of Louisiana. You know, they're like country kind of guys. Really incredible musicians. And Robbie Robertson was also Martin Scorsese's best friend. He scored all of Scorsese's movies most of them. Really? Scorsese, yeah, Scorsese's going to be really, really depressed about this.
1: That's heavy. My my, my favorite Scorsese movie is uh Gomorrah. Uh, you ever read the uh, – have you, you seen Gomorrah? You read the book Gomorrah? Gomorrah. Gomorrah? Gamora. Are so, you familiar with Roberto Saviano's work? He's been in witness protection. Gamora,
2: Gamora is that big TV series about crime in Italy, right?
1: So, Gamora is a book written by the journalist Roberto Saviano from Naples. And ever since he wrote, about wrote that. about
2: the Naples gangs, right?
1: Yeah, it's about the mafia. But
2: Scorsese didn't direct Gamora, the TV series. That, that no, big he book. did. He,
1: he made a film in 2009 called Gamora um, based on the book. And then the TV series Ooh. is fairly recent.
2: Oh, hold on a second. I have to check your facts here because I know most Scorsese movies. And so, hold on. You could be right. Hold on. Let me move your face up there and go to the fact checking.
1: Because uh, um, it, I, yeah. I know
2: the I know, I know TV series. The very, TV series is
1: unbelievable. Um, and Roberto Saviano. the the journalist it's a it's a crazy story like Saviano he he was a journalist working in Naples which is the home of the mafia and and the poorest part of Italy and uh he wrote that book because he just had a gut full of what was happening like he was just constantly reporting on the the gratuitous violence and thuggery of mafia and then he just like most people living in Naples hold on
2: stop stop right there Gamora is a two thousand and eight Italian crime film directed by Matteo Garoni. Really? Based on the book. Yeah, I mean, I know my fucking filmmaker. Fuck, bro.
1: sorry, dude. Yeah,
2: For you sure. know, you're talking, you're talking to a master of the of the cinema here. Where did you go? I mean, I know if I, If Scorsese had directed Gamora, I would have known about it. But now that you're talking about Scorsese, I don't like Gamora. Don't get me wrong; I'm all about it. But have you never seen
1: *Casino*? I've seen *Casino*. Yeah can't believe I was wrong yeah. on that. Fuck. What? I can't yeah. believe I was wrong on that. I'm rattled. I've been telling people Scorsese directed that film for years.
2: Well, you know, you finally encountered someone who has a fucking Ivy League Masters postdoctoral degree in film. <laughs> and you've been corrected. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, too you true. You stand corrected. Okay. You
2: stand corrected. Indeed but, I do.
1: In a public setting, no less. How good. Well,
2: just to be quite clear, Sea of Darkness was never intended as a surfing movie, if you get my drift. It was intended as a movie, movie. And, you know, even though it's a documentary, I don't think we have to categorize ourselves in these generic um, labels. And I think that's the great failing of surf filmmaking is that nobody ever saw it as anything more than, than surf porn. You know what I mean? They didn't see it as filmmaking. And... Um, except for me. <laughs> Mate. You know, I mean, the top, the subject matter. it's still to this day. I mean, it's still, you know, even the best of it, like Taylor Steele's stuff or, um, hundred foot wave. I mean, it's still surf porn. You know what I mean? It's not mm. dealing with, with the socio political issues that create this environment and how they came about. and uh, I had an interesting conversation on the phone yesterday with with Garrett McNamara. He he called me from Europe. Uh, He wants to do a film on his life and he has a really interesting life story. Yeah, I bet. And, uh, um, you know, he comes from like a broken home and uh, uh, really serious drug-addled parents, kind of like the Marubera kind of thing, you you know? He never saw his mother and father after he was about 10 years old, him and Liam. And, I mean, it's really amazing how they pulled themselves up from their bootstraps. They were from the East Coast and, uh, and only came to Hawaii when they were, I don't know how they ended up there, when they were in their teens. So they, they started surfing quite late. Um, it's very interesting story. I didn't know. I, I just always thought he was born in Hawaii. And I've known him and Liam for years. Anyway, we'll see how that goes. But
1: uh, I love the sound of that um i loved heavy water the nate fletcher doco that you made uh... and even
2: that if you look at that it's not intended as surf porn right it's got real hardcore narrative there about fear and death and pushing yourself to extremes and coming from dark hard scrabble backgrounds you know whether it's drug addiction or you know it's chosen Darkness, you know, like having Jay Adams as a babysitter and the kind of socio-ideological, uh, effect of that, you know, growing up in that environment, also having Herbie Fletcher and Dibby Fletcher as parents, you know, I didn't get too deep into the family as I wanted to because they want the, um, Herbie and Debbie wanted me to save that story for another time, but, um, There's definitely a lot of conflict that that underlies Nathan and Christian Fletcher, right?
1: Mm. Oh yeah, and
2: and that you know, I I honestly would say that Christian Fletcher is the most innovative surfer of the postmodern era of the of the um, from the 1990s onward, wouldn't you say? I mean, all all of modern aerial surfing is a footnote to what Christian Fletcher did in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, he was so ahead. If you compare what Christian Fletcher was doing to what the ASP was doing, right, there's no real comparison as to which, who had more effect. I mean, here's another way to put it, right? Sean Thompson and Barton Lynch and uh, Damian Hardman and Rabbit Bartholomew and all those guys, they had a very serious effect on the commercial exploitation of competitive surfing, right? I mean, they basically created this. I think it was um, Bobby Martinez who described it as trying to turn surfing into the World Tennis League, you know, like making. I don't want to be a
1: part of this dumb fucking wannabe tennis tour. It's in the uh, intro to the show.
2: Exactly right. One of my all-time favorite surfers. At that same time in a parallel universe, Christian Fletcher was being booted out of the ASP. You remember how Sean Thompson and all those guys complained about him when he was he was a top sixteen surfer and he won trestles, uh, doing all these aerial maneuvers, and of course none of these guys could even do that stuff. Never mind. Understand why you would want to do that stuff. And the irony is now the ASC is the most winningest surfers on the AOC are the ones who are absolutely indebted to the legacy of Christian Fletcher, certainly not to the legacy of Sean Thompson or or Rabbit Bartholomew or or that style of surfing, you know? Mm. They're not, you know, you're not getting you know, you, you really have to see that, and I'm not making a judgment that one style of surfing is better than the other, you know? I'm just saying that It's ironical that this dark force in the surfing world and certainly Christian and his close friends like Matt Archibald and Jay Adams in the late 90s, in the late 80s and 90s, were certainly a dark force in the surfing world, you know, with their very explicit drug addictions and covered in tattoos and various hairstyles and this absolutely radical aerial approach to surfing was not accepted in the mainstream of surfing at that point right was mm. i don't think
1: no not at all well, and 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 watching your film it was interesting actually you know seeing that classical speed freak iconography the hairdos the face tats that kind of uh steampunk futuristic punk look like uh that was all really born out of that that urban uh west coast skate and surf culture and it really got me thinking a lot about surfing and skate culture you know these are really new cultures they're very man-made cultures and uh the roots of these cultures like in that american scene anyway like the christian fletcher christian hassoi jay adams nate fletcher scene it's so mired in this heavy drug abuse and this kind of dilapidated urban landscape, and this like,
2: well, it's America. I mean, that's the United States. It's just, you know, the United States, we are so close to South America, right? That it's not like, if Sea of Darkness is about how, is, is really about how do we get some cocaine to Australia? You know what I mean? <laughs> that's what the movie's really about. I, how do we get a kilo of pure coke to Australia? They got all these great ways. Well, they have no fucking cocaine, right? <laughs> On the other hand, the United States is just—and you can use that as your your quote line, right? <laughs> yeah. But your your log line. But the United States is like, you know, a couple of plane hops away from fucking Colombia and Peru and Mexico, mm. and you know, it's mired in fucking drugs. It's uh, and it always has been. I mean, that's what's terrifying and wonderful about capitalist culture in its in its essence which is america right which yeah. is sort of is that for every for every um million dollar success story there's just a trillion failed dreams wandering through the Negro streets of dawn at dawn, looking for an angry fix, as Mm. Allen Ginsberg wrote in Howl, right? You know, they're just those, those lost, pathetic losers living on the outskirts of Golgotha, you know, on the back roads of Babylon, right? That's where they live in, right? There's like New York City's like, you know, 10 miles of incredibly expensive, high-end real estate, just surrounded by square mile upon square mile of of disintegrating buildings. And, you know, it, it's, it's certainly less so now, but there's still the projects just stretch for untold square miles of poverty and drug abuse and violence and crime around this hegemonic core of wealth and that's kind of the 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 the, the iconography the you know the um the uh, the the um architectural iconography of every american city i mean hmm. you know they're all they're all like these enclaves of wealth surrounded by disintegration and poverty right and well yeah. so i think I, I and i think you know Surf culture is a very strong reflection of that. So is rap music. So is the blues. I mean, all the great things that came out of America, rock and roll, they all came out of the, the um poverty-stricken extremes, right? And then moved into main culture. They got absorbed by by capital. As as entrepreneurs saw a way to make money by these through these nascent subcultures, they exploited them. Mm. And along the way, the early proponents of these cultures, be they black blues men, right, who who got stiffed for their royalties by huge pop acts like Led Zeppelin, right? I mean, Led Zeppelin was just copying fucking, you know, Robert Johnson and Marty Waters, they got sued by all those guys. Willie Dixon sued them, you know, successfully, right? Wow. For ripping up all their licks. I mean, that's just one instance. I mean, for all the rappers that were really successful, the the guys who started it all, like Curtis Blow and Africa Bombarder and the, the the new poets of The Lost City, they ended up fucking petting this just about, right? That's in rap too, you know? The same goes for all other subcultures, you know, um, yeah. uh, and definitely surfing. Simon definitely Anderson surfing and the was, thruster. <laughs> well, I think Simon Anderson made some money, but I mean, he, you know, he's still, but I mean, I'm, I'm thinking more of, you know, because the, you know, I mean, we can, you know, the thruster innovation is a whole nother is a whole nother story. Cause we have to then address the bonzer and we have to address, you know, Malcolm and Duncan Campbell and, Various contributions that were happening simultaneously to Simon uh, Simon Anderson's
1: contribution,
2: you know. Um, hey, back but to the all right he, for himself. He sells a lot of boards,
1: doesn't he? Well, I mean, there was definitely some lean years there, and uh, I, I think that he, uh, given the the insane ramifications of that design, uh, that yeah, he definitely did not benefit. I as, never
2: ride them. I barely ever ride a thruster. <laughs> no. I mean, I'm much but... more into four fins. I love four fin. If I'm into a high-performance board, not that I'm – you know, I'm getting really old now. So it's like oh, high-performance is barely what I'd call my surfing. It's stumbling to my feet. Gun- Guntra and I have these conversations all the time about getting up. But I still like – if I get onto a good wave, I really like being, you know, my four fin. I mean, for me, I'd, I'd give Carl Smith – a lot more credit for innovating you know It's my kind of board i love i have a going to a replica of a Col- of the call smith eight channel single fin fucking kick-ass board wow. you know? i i think fins were designed to be moved around and changed i think again it's part of the the, the reason the thruster just became um fashionable because of the homogeneity of uh of, of, of commercial and 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 um uh competitive surfing but i never really cared for that kind of surfing anyway you know i mean i come from that soul you know for me you know you didn't see jerry lopez in a whole lot of competitions you know what i mean uh yeah occasional but nothing really you know i mean he kind of later on lent his name to the pipeline masters but uh in general you know my my tendencies would be you know servers that i love would be like you know you you know guys like Craig Anderson or, or you know those kind of guys who, mm. who are riding all, all sorts of different boards, right? And uh, Wayne Lynch is my hero, mm. man. And, and so, 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 so just to so my point that I'm making here is yes, the Thruster is the perfect thing that got the perfect style of board that went down that generic ASP WSL style of surfing, right? Um, and Christian Fletcher is like those old black blues guys and early hip-hop artists who didn't really get the financial rewards for their fucking innovation, which is, dude, Christian Fletcher is a hundred times more innovative than Simon Anderson. I'm so sorry. I don't give a fuck about a thruster. It's just three fins, and then there's four fins, and then there's one mm-hmm. fin and two side fins and all that shit. That, that's, that's just fins. That's just boards. Christian Fletcher was fucking flying through the air and doing air reverses and fucking <laughs> switch footing a pipeline and fucking, uh, you know, his father did the first jet ski tow-ins way before Len Hamilton even was out of his diapers, right? You know, those are the guy you know, I give, give Martin Potter a lot more credit for innovation before I'm going to give it to Simon Anderson for the thruster. You know what I mean? Yes, the thruster was a great innovation, if you like that, kind of started surfing and you know, it's perfect for um, a certain kind of, you know, in the box, um, traditional competitive surfing and, and other kinds of, you know, yeah, you know, we got to, but uh, I mean, to Kelly Slater's credit, because he is the most in the box surfer ever and, you know, the, the greatest of all time competitively, right? I don't necessarily think he's the greatest surfer of all time. He's a great surfer and it's really magic to watch him at Big Pipeline for sure, right? Um, usually he's on a forefin. <laughs> I mean, Kelly and forefins were really popularized by Nathan Yeah, Fletcher, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so, I mean, part of the whole thrust, no pun intended, Simon Anderson, part of the whole thrust of heavy water is to tangle with those kind of trajectories of surfing, right? But really, you know, my money's always on the dark horses. You know, it always has been because I'm a dark horse. You know, I'm just like uh, one of those kind of guys. You know, I never really made any money out of this shit. I mean, I've spent ever since I made Sea of Darkness, I've spent my whole like 10 years battling with fucking Martin Daly about, you know, getting the vision of the movie out there, right? Mm. As opposed to Martin's vision of the universe. You know, I mean, it's just that kind of shit, right? It's um, capital versus um, creativity.
1: Mate, talk to us about the film because there's listeners that won't have seen it. Uh, and in my mind, it's the greatest surf film ever made. The the, the best in my
2: mind, actually, in my mind as well.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's unsurprising. But uh, no, it's it's amazing. Like uh, not I in mean... Martin's
2: mind. Martin's told me countless times that it's a total piece of shit. He's like the most disgruntled motherfucker about that film you could possibly be, right? Which is really sad because. It was
0: an amazing
1: collaboration with him. Mate, it's an amazing that. film, and uh, I mean, just tell us uh, about the, the thrust of the narrative and and some of the characters for for those who haven't seen it, and uh, maybe where they can even see it. I know it's kicking around on a bunch of fucking hard drives. I'm not
2: allowed. To know, I'm not allowed to know where you can see it. So yeah, know, I don't want to. I'm probably not even know, allowed I've to I've say that. Just to be clear, I've it's never, around. Um, If you ask within
1: your surf community, someone will likely have it. I've
2: never released a copy of it to any unauthorized place. It was sent to a couple of film festivals with Martin's permission. And, you know, they they were supposed to be trusted venues. And obviously someone somewhere along the line duplicated it and made a copy of it. I mean, Taylor Steele once sent me a picture of a copy that he had. That had obviously come from a film festival somewhere, right? So, um, but I've never, you know, it would never be in my interests to release that film, right, uh, without getting any commercial return, both for the money that Martin put in and for the time that I put in, you know. Totally. So we've never got, we've never got any money back. I, I'm, I'm really want to make a deal, a commercial deal, um, of some sort, and 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 get Martin's money back, but. Uh, you know, there's always various kinds of impediments to these. We've come, we've had so many deals. He shot them all down. It's a real bummer. I mean, you know, right out the gate, uh, the company that later became Red Bull uh, Media House, all those guys wanted to distribute the movie and they had money. Mm-hmm. They were right behind it and I couldn't get Martin to agree to do it. So that's always been the issue, you know, mm-hmm. it's not really a, a mystery why it didn't come out. It's just, he's never felt comfortable with it coming out in, in the maybe I'm going to be able to convince him now, you know, um, but we'll see. I've tried, I'm really trying. Um, but the film essentially, the film was designed like a, like a funnel, right? It was designed, it started off in a kind of global description of the world in that time in the in the 1970s, after Vietnam. And I got John Milius, who wrote Apocalypse Now, because the film Sea of Darkness, I got that title from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, right? And the film was, in my mind, inspired by the Charlie Don't Surf episode in uh, Apocalypse Now that John had written. And I had gotten friendly with John through a friend of mine, Bill MacDonald. And John had been a surfer and he was close with Eddie Rothman and he was an honorary member of the Dahooey and he directed Big Wednesday and he he um, grew up with Mickey Dora and he was part of the original Malibu crew. and So I spent a long time of a certain portion of my life hanging out with John Milius. And notwithstanding his incredibly right-wing authoritarian views, right? Wow. He was really? one of those kind of, Oh yeah, absolutely. Very much like a right-wing American ideologue. Like a lot of these guys, like Bill McDonald, who produced um, the Saint and who worked, who was um, a writing and producing partner with John Milius on a number of projects. These guys were really proto-Trumpians, right? They they were libertarian, liber- libertarian, semi-fascist, as far as I was concerned. They really. Their their view of the world is very much what underlies Steve Bannon. I mean, Bill McDonald gave Steve Bannon his first office job in America, in in Los Angeles. And he was John Millicent's closest associate. So I know those guys well. Even though I come from a very different um, political uh, viewpoint, I was very friendly with them because they are some of the brightest guys I've ever met in my life. Mm. And I listen to them. Uh, I spent a lot of time with John and heard a lot of amazing surfing stories, right? Especially one of my biggest questions I put to him is why he... Because he knew Mickey Dora so well, right? And he grew up with him. And because he had such power in the film world at a certain point, you know, when he'd written Apocalypse Now and he'd done Big Wednesday and Conan the Barbarian and all these huge movies, right? Right. Um I said why didn't you make the Mickey Dora story and he said because Mickey Dora was the greatest tragedy I'd ever encountered in my life. He was just like a waste of brilliance. Right? And uh, uh he said he was one of the when he, when they were teenagers, uh he would go to Mickey Dora's apartment in Brentwood and the walls were just lined with books on existentialism, Sartre and Camus and um You know, beat poetry, Ferlinghetti and Ginsberg and and Burroughs. He said, Mickey Dora was incredibly well-read and incredibly aware of the culture around him and uh, um, was an absolute waste in Milius' mind that he couldn't put himself to better creative use, but succumbed to a kind of feral narcissism. Right. couldn't
1: capitalize on his talents. Maybe he didn't want to capitalize on his talents. Maybe that's the core of surfing is that well, has no, no, never no, no, understood.
2: No, 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 You're missing my point. I don't think the word is capitalize, you know? I think the word is narcissism. And it it is the exact same – it is the exact same um, narrative – Underpinning sea of darkness, right? It's I learned this from Millius, right? Millius saw the surfing activity in its purest form as feral narcissism, right?
1: Feral, in as much oh, as it's funny.
2: What's my term? I have to say, Millius did not use the term feral narcissism. My encapsulation of Millius's. Uh analysis is feral narcissism right that um like he said in the movie he says once you go asiatic you don't come back right Mm. meaning once you took that turn be it in the vietnam war which is where most of this in in that funnel metaphor that i use that global view of the world at that point is you've got all of these milieus um blending in Vietnam you have Australians fighting in Vietnam and you have Americans fighting in Vietnam and you have um, people coming from all these different cultures right in this melting pot and but you're right there in the golden triangle near Myanmar and Thailand and the place and it's the 60s and there's drugs everywhere and there's Thai stick and heroin and it's just a wash with drugs, right? And there isn't this kind of anti-drug culture yet that that develops later on, in in the early seventies, the kind of sobriety culture, you know, when people realize, well, you we can't actually, you know, the big rock stars like Bob Dylan and and uh, uh, Mick Jagger and. Uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, we can't actually make our hundreds of millions of dollars if we got a needle in our arm all the time, right? We need to get back to work, here, right? Else we're going to lose all our money, right? Or something like that. That's what I call capitalizing thereon, right? I don't think in Milius's rendition of that failing of Mickey Dora, that it was a failure to capitalize, right? It was The fact that when you got absorbed into this counterculture in a certain way, right, you kind of went down the rabbit hole. And that rabbit hole is a feral because you're living outside of the cities and you're living outside of urban culture and you're living outside of, you know. A bathtub and a shower and a bar of soap. You know, you're because basically... you got no money. Exactly, you've well, chosen you to surf subs... instead of well. You find subsistence. You find subsistence ways to live mm. because it is a counterculture. It's, it's, it's an alternative culture, and you you are absorbed in this narcissistic activity because surfing, as opposed to playing the guitar or writing poetry or whatever surfing's closest byproduct that it produces that leaves an impression that is enduring and cultural and and therefore sociological is when people like Jack McCoy and Dick Hoole pitched up with their cameras and filmed it right
1: mm.
2: you know albeit the narrow you know Jack McCoy's movies never rise above surf porn. To me, again, it's right in that pornography zone. Um, that's not a pejorative description. It's just where they locate themselves ideologically for me, right? They don't interrogate critically the culture, right? And part of the reason they don't interrogate the culture critically is because they're absorbed in their own narcissism, right? They're, 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 encapsulated by the mirror image of themselves right that's what they're doing they're mirroring what's taking place and why sea of darkness was a big surprise to everybody was that it it critically interpolated itself into that culture and instead of saying well this is wonderful and this is what we need to do right and this is how we want we got let's go you know instead of this kind of zen like um immersion in uh in an endless orgy of 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 wave orgasms right which is surf porn right it's just like how many times can i come in a barrel of g right you know and i mean <laughs> it, it, it's personified by ricky rasmussen in that great sequence where he's fucking smacked out on heroin and getting barreled at the same time it's kind of like fucking a girl after you've done a big line of Coke, right? Or getting her to suck Coke off your dick or, you know, licking a pussy with Coke on it, right? It's the same thing, right? Except it's now the narcissism is so complete in surfing that we don't even need a girl. We don't need anybody. (laughs) We've just got me, the wave and the drug. And I can't even think how many Years I spent as a kid getting high out of my fucking mind, dropping into waves at Cormauta and Jay Bay and Vic Bay in South Africa. I didn't care about fucking girls, even though I was probably at my most physically appealing. Right. You know, all young surfers and young bucks between like, you know, 16 and 25 or, you know, guys who surf a lot. Right. You you are super fit, so when you get to seventy, like me, you still look really good because you've surfed your whole fucking life, right? But when you're eighteen, you're really looking good. You're like thin and lean, and you got long fucking hair down your shoulders, and all these chicks are fucking falling over their fucking, dropping out of their bikinis for you. But you don't give a fuck because you're you want to just get high and surf. Right. That was my experience anyway, right? Yeah, so yeah. I could really I could really relate. I had no desire to make money from surfing. I had a desire to make surfing from surfing. So I could spend hours out in the ocean at J Bay or wherever I was going, right? I wasn't affecting maneuvers that would get me points in a competition. Albeit I'll never forget the first time I saw a 14-year-old Sean Thompson ride super tubes. It was absolutely insane, right? How good he was. And it blew my mind. I'd never seen anybody get barreled that long and be able to stay in a barrel that long and then make it, right? But he saw that framework as an economic framework, as, as you said, and something you could capitalize on, right? Um, whereas I just saw it as pure ecstasy. And that's, was the difference in the late 60s and early 70s between soul surfers and competitive surfers, right? So I'm still tracking the same conversation that we had right at the beginning of this talk, You know, mm. comparing Christian Fletcher and Nathan Fletcher to Sean Thompson and Simon Anderson and these two different trajectories, right? And it gets right to back to the question: Is well, Simon Anderson did the most innovative thing in surfing on surfboards, and I'm questioning that because you know I'd I'd rather ride a Bonzer any day. Mm. <laughs> I mean, mm. I think Malcolm I think Malcolm Campbell is the most innovative shaper in surfing, or, or or Ben Iper, You know, you know what I mean. So there's a lot of there's a there's a lot more to that one than the fact. Yes, he Simon Anderson should have because his design was so commodifiable because his design was so easy to use, because his design worked so well in in-the-box surfing, he should have fucking patented it. And then ASP and the World Surf League would have had to pay him royalties every time they, keep, they trotted their boards because they're the best comp- all-round competitive boards. They don't just like, you know, when you're on a rail and a 4 fin, you suddenly just catch all four-fins. You're fucked, dude. Yeah, you know,
1: but, Similar to Mickey so, Dora. So that's
2: my point. My point is, They're these two parallel um, universes that Mm. take place in all enterprises, and especially in all subcultures that come from a soulful root. And Sea of Darkness addresses that. That's what this film is about, right? It addresses that. I knew in 2008, 2009, when I was doing this film, that nobody had ever done a surf film like this, that nobody... um, I didn't even have to have the intellectual wherewithal to do this. I mean, certainly John Milius probably could have done it, but he was such a fucking right-wing authoritarian, totalitarian, that he didn't think in terms of challenging cultures per se. He was very good at critically analyzing them, but that's why he was so successful commercially, and whereas I wasn't, because I was always fucking critically analyzing everybody like a dumb fucking Marxist educated you know, I mean, I just studied with too many Marxists, you know, and post-Marxists and structuralists and post-structuralists. And, you know, I studied with Deleuze and Guattari and, and Lacan and, and uh, Baudrillard. And, you know, my main mentor was Sylvain L'Ottranger, who published semiotext. You should, you should go and look at semiotext, right? And Look at schizoculture mm. and polysexuality that I... That Culture you
1: know, sounds right up my alley.
2: Yeah, and it was we did it in, I think, nineteen eighty-one or eighty-two. Mm. You know, we were just like years ahead of the world, right? So it's like time for surfing to catch up to me, right? Or not. I mean, maybe they are in some ways, but it's like there's a long way to go because you really have to plow. That's why I like talking to you, Jed, because you have some of the artillery to understand more than the soft surf, surf porn universe, right? that yeah. we're, we're, we're applying critical theory to this universe Mate. and we're, we're analyzing and that's what sea of darkness is really trying to do and heavy water. And hopefully the new Sonny Garcia movie is going to blow the roof out of it. Just, I'm just praying that these new, my new financial partners actually come through so we can finish it. Cause it's like, you know, if sea of darkness deals with feral narcissistic early surf culture and that divergence between um, soul surfing and the advent of, of um, surf industry, you know, how like surf industry giants like Quicksilver and Rip Curl emerged out of that cocaine smuggling universe, right? And then they became the the, the corporations that funded competitive surfing. It was all a nice big package so that we could have the the lawn tennis version of surfing, right? which culminates in Kelly Slater's, God forbid, fucking wave pool, where we have it so packaged that we can now go to the mid-desert, the middle of the desert, press a button, and here come these perfectly articulated waves, which are, you know, a phenomenon to behold. It's the only wave pool I've ever seen, where the waves are critical, dangerous, powerful. I mean, it's something to see. It's It's a feat of... Of, of engineering that, and it, it's testament to Slater's maniacal genius. You know, it's like it, it's like that Paul Thomas Anderson film, "There Will Be Blood," right? Like Slater's like that. He's like, but he's but he's right in the box. He's not out of the box. It's like perfectly designed so that it could be packaged into the culture at large, commodified, and that's capitalizing on surfing. That's not what Milius' critique of Mickey Dora was. It wasn't that he could capitalize on surfing. It was that he didn't realize his capacity, his inner gifts. And it's born out. Have you read
1: Mickey Dora's writings? Have you read all... Uh, You haven't? No, I'd love to. Well, why haven't you? Oh, fuck. I didn't even know they existed till now. Well, have you not studied history, young man? Uh, bits and bobs here and there. Apparently, I don't know.
2: little sinkers and bobs, my man. Well, I think you need to go and look at some old surfer magazines mm. from the 80s when, when Mickey Dora completely left capitalist culture. He went from Guitary, which is a beautiful place, but being France, it's like the epitome of, of bourgeois capitalism, right? Extremely expensive. He went down to South Africa to live in jay bay when it was wild when my brother jonathan may he rest in peace was there with 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 ant van the and the boys and desi sawyer um stevie's dad you know another friend who grew up with me and gunter and they were living in the bush there and that's when mickey dora was there my brother was friends with him you know
1: wow and, didn't know he did time yeah,
2: at jay bay dora spent the entire 80s at jay bay running from the police that's and he was and he was um uh, because he found a, a wonderful crime caper. Uh, you you would go up to Namibia. You know the donkey, Skeleton Bay, the wave that 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 uh, surf thinks they discovered, but which of course has been there for fucking decades. We're just trying to keep secrets in the Namibian <laughs> desert. We 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 were surfing that. I, I was telling Strider Wazaluski and I. You know we know each other from Venice, right? And uh, I was you know he was like raving because he finally got to surf the donkey right And now you know it really is a fucking death death barrel dude it's really scary but that whole coastline all the way from cape town up to Walvis base you know it's like about 800 miles of coast it's just that it's like that is the land of left the other coast J bay vic bay or the land of right and it's that the skeleton coast is so dangerous it's like desolate it's a real desert like the kalahari desert It comes right down to the ocean and the water is the, the, and the ground is about 110 degrees and the ocean is about 45 degrees fucking freezing you know i don't know what that is in celsius but, and they have rip currents that'll just suck you to your death you know there's just nobody around paddling i just remember paddling that whole coastline with my brother and my friends and how intense you know those Every time you paddled out, you checked yourself. And it wasn't just for the waves. It was where this rip was going to drag you, you know, to fucking the South Pole. It was that powerful, right? You were poised. And that's why you get that perfectly lined up sand point. is from that insane dredging rip that's coming down at the same speed that that wave is breaking in the opposite wow. direction. So that's Mickey Dore. But in the sand around there are diamonds. It's one of hmm. the world's greatest repository of diamonds and Mickey Dora would go up there on these surf trips and he'd find these diamonds and they illegal like we grew up in South Africa with a with an idiom it was called IDB dealing and IDB was what all the old Jewish men would do they would be going up there to the to the desert we don't tell anybody we come back with the diamond the pack they'd have these packets of paper with diamonds right And IDB was in dad's business. That's what it stood for. But it also stood for illegal diamond buying. And there was this whole subculture of diamonds. So Dora was in his element. He could commit a crime in the part of the world where there was virtually no authority, right? Because the the white South African police were so busy, like all fascist totalitarian states, desperately hanging on to preserving apartheid. It's kind of like Putin. Or Donald Trump. They're just desperate. That's another form of narcissism. They're definitely hanging on to preserving their own power structure, and they're completely oblivious to what's really going on around them until ultimately it leads to their own downfall. Right. Mickey Dora capitalized on that. And his writings, there's some incredible articles in Surfer magazine that he would send these like these missives back from the from the west coast of Africa talking about diamond dealing and surfing and
1: You've got to read that.
2: That's your reading today. Yeah. That's
1: your, I'll try and track I, it down. I, I,
2: should, I think I should become a professor of surfing history and teach at a university.
1: 100%, for sure. I, I, I this is you basically. You get me a
2: job in Australia because they probably won't have me here. I think, I, I think they, uh, that they find some kind of predatorial accusation to level against me here in this kind of woke bullshit culture.
1: It's, it's fascinating yeah. the Mickey Dory yarn because. You know, I see so many parallels with him and the modern incarnations, your Travis Potters, your Mikala Jones, um, guys who were well aware that they were sitting on top of these immense resources in in surfing, uncrowded, perfect waves, but they were just so committed to not exposing him and they lived feral, poor lives. Not MJ so much. He 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 kind of oh, tried I knew I
2: knew I knew Mikala. I met him quite a few yeah. times on the North Shore. He's one of the most Superb human beings I ever met in my life. I mean, truly, truly on another level. Talk about living in an alternate universe, right? But again, that was feral narcissism. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it wasn't exactly. like he was. Well, but he had a very interesting take. You see, he's because Macaulay was a real artist. I mean, his GoPro photography is the best ever. Nobody did better than him. I mean, he is so considered and so intentional in what he's doing there with that work that it's transcendent. It goes beyond surf porn. Mm. It becomes performance art because he was putting himself so at risk, and that's why he died, to take those shots. I mean, you know, he would frame the shot. He knew exactly what he was doing, right? He would frame the shot so his arm with the GoPro was just out of the picture. The light was perfect. The barrel was, you know, dude, that guy was a very intentional human being, right? Mm. So that's, I think... What Milius was getting at with Dora is that the only times we saw that realized in Dora was when he wrote his own writings. That was where you caught glimpses of the magical creative brilliance of Dora. And the rest of the time, it was just narcissistic enterprise to keep the surfing going, which was the same as Mike Boyham in Sea of Darkness.
1: And so many others, so many others. Like these people's main goal is just to get perfect uncrowded waves. But the moment they capitalize on their passion, they blow the waves out that they love. Well and they that's blow why the they sport all hate out.
2: Martin Daly. That's why Martin's so reviled by a lot of these people because he exploits it. I mean Jack McCoy fucking hates Martin. I mean I I got myself into a hornet's nest of fucking insane vituperation Doing this, I didn't even fucking know what I was putting my fucking foot into. It was like, Jesus Christ, I got, I got stung by scorpions, you know?
1: Exactly. That's the fine line that all surfers tread in the surf industry. Do I blow out the, the waves and the sport that I love for money? Or do I just continue to live the feral narcissist existence uh, with no family but rich on tubes where barrels are your currency? And, and... Well,
2: that's the reason why. The two great places, which arguably have the best waves in the world, the most consistent, are the least inhabited because they share an inhospitability to the average surfer. That you know, which of the two places I'm going to say, you tell me. Let's see if you can think what I'm, who are the, where are the two locations I'm going to give you? There's two, two locations that are filled with big ass fucking. Eight to twenty-foot fucking barrels.
1: Well, Africa would have to be. I South mean, South
2: Africa. South Africa's one, yeah, yeah. And what's, yeah. what's the other parallel? The other parallel universe, also incredibly uh, underpopulated in its most wildest areas.
1: Uh, potentially Australia. Yeah, uh, West Oz, dude, West Oz. But these places are the blown deserts. out now, man. They're fucking West Oz. It not Africa. Africa, West no. Oz. Australia right. is blown to smithereens, man. It's busy but there's now. There's still a
2: lot of desolate parts of West Oz still. On. I mean, I haven't been
1: on. not with waves. Like, there's a couple. There's a, there is a couple, but um, there's honestly people are pretty onto it now. So, um, yeah. It, South it,
2: Africa, the places where they're really good waves. I mean, J Bay, obviously. You know, the warmer regime, the warmer regions are are much more commodified, right? But mm. the the west coast is fucking inhospitable dude it's no ne- you know it's just hard to live there and mm-hmm. it's really cold it's really in the middle of fucking nowhere there's like great white sharks everywhere there's like fucking what could destroy it is there's a lot of because south africa has so much illegitimate enterprises going on it always has there's uh, a move afoot by mining. There's, it's very mineral-rich, diamond-rich. Uh, there's all sorts of mining industries that are sort of moving into that area, and that could really fuck it up, you
0: know? Mm-hmm.
2: That that that. I hope that doesn't happen. I know Twiggy Baker and a number, you know, Alan Van Geisen, the photographer, and Matt Bromley, and a lot of the great South African feral surfers are doing their best to fight this incursion. And, uh, you know, obviously... We would like to destroy all of these capitalist pigs coming in there.
1: Mm. It's interesting. I think I,
2: need, I think I need to do that. That's, 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 uh, well, they're not coming in there. I'm going to plug my phone in. They're not coming in there to do, um, to build, a um, you know, juicy bourgeois, petty bourgeois, um, Airbnb. Style five star hotels with spas, like they do in Western Oz, right? They got a lot of that and vineyards and shit like that. They have that in Cape Town and they have that on the Garden Route on the way to J Bay, but up uh, by Swakopmund and Namibia and Walvis Bay and all that area, uh, and and the, the the far northern regions of the Western Cape, it's much more about uh, industry coming in and really fucking the place up, you
1: mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's
2: really terrifying.
1: It, it that tends to be the case in if it's a, a nice, uh, you know, the garden route says it all. Really, if it's nice and green, yeah, you can have your bourgeois enterprise. But if it's desert, you got to have mining. And West Australia is exactly the same. You know, down exactly. south, marks, you know, I'm staring at something
2: just really beautiful. I'm going to show you. See, look, you see that? See that board up
1: there? Is that a bonsai? What is that?
2: That. Is one of the last boards Dick Brewer ever shaped before he died. Wow! When I won, when I won um, the Surfer Pole for the second time with heavy water, Derek Dorner, who works has worked with me a bunch and who I love, um, Derek was working has worked with Dick for years. Obviously, you know, being one of the greatest, Derek being one of the greatest big wave riders of all time, and. Uh, he had Dick shape me two boards to commemorate because it was my second Surfer Pole Award. I don't think any film makers won it twice, you know, besides me uh, that I know about. And uh, and Dick made me these two red and yellow boards like that. One's a, a seven two seven six replica of a pipeline that he'd made. That I actually owned the original one as well from the seventies. But he re- but it's a bit delaminated, you know, it's old, right? And he remade that for me. And then he made this is a classic uh ten foot, you know, wire me a gun.
1: Yeah, wow. Well, and uh, amazing. they're
2: they're signed, you know, to Michael, you know, surfer Paul award, da, 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 wow. glossed by glossed by Jack Reeves, you know, the, the legendary glosser. I've never I'm never gonna use them. I mean, they're just like the most precious boards. Man. I can't imagine how much money they're worth. One thing I love about your
1: story and and your career is that it starts in surfing. And I can relate to this. It starts in surfing, but then it takes this grand arc through Europe, uh, East Coast America, the major cities of the world, the major arts and culture hubs. But surfing is the thread that continues to tie your existence together. And and, and it's done that. Surfing
2: surfing and music.
1: And I'm glad Uh, you mentioned that, that, man. Because, in the midst of like these surf films you've made, you, you've done so much that people probably look, aren't look aware here. of.
2: Look at, look at my lounge. Look. Wow. Look, can you see? Me?
1: Yeah, you got look pianos and keyboards everywhere. So, this is
2: a 1970s Fender Rhodes. This is a 1960 Hammond Bean 3. This is a 1970 Revox tape deck that I have to record on. Here's a piano from my parents' house in South Africa i grew up with this piano i, br- I had it shipped from south africa
1: Here that's here's classic. my
2: synth. here's my synth look at all these vintage guitars dude wow
1: man that's wild uh for those listening look, on the podcast look at the strat.
2: here's a 70s strat yeah. here's a 1933 national steel Here's a 1960s Hagstrom. So this is all the gear that I've collected over the years. Because my closest friend growing up is a guy called Anton Fig. He's a drummer. He was the drummer of the David Letterman show. He's one of the most famous drummers in the world. He was the session drummer on all um, uh, Cindy Lauper, "Girls Just Want to Have Fun," all that shit. He's the drummer on that. He played with Mick Jagger and with Dylan, and and so Anton and I grew up surfing. We started surfing when we were in our before we were teenagers in South Africa, right? Because we we were born on the beach and houses adjacent houses, and we both had these big pianos because his mother and my uncle were musicians. So we grew up with music. So we always played after school. We would jam and play the piano, and and Anton has played on just every soundtrack of every movie I've ever done with me. And I do a lot of my own scoring on my movies. I played on. On heavy water, like it's all scored by me and this incredible collaborator of mine, Paul Buckholz, who's an amazing young musician and editor and right. We and and then Anton playing drums. Paul is a bass player. We we scored the whole thing ourselves. We brought in Peter De Stefano from Porno for Pyros, and you know, plays with Perry Farrell. And uh, so the two threads of so Anton and I had surfing and music, our whole lives. And filmmaking, I mean, I have cameras, my original eight mil camera that my dad bought me. I You know, when, when I saw them filming uh, um, The Endless Summer on the beach in front of my parents' house in like 61 or whenever I was about two years old, I uh, immediately wanted a surfboard and a film camera and I got them both. So that filmmaking is, a th- I had still have eight millimeter movies that my mom kept that I made when I was like 10, 11 years old. I have a whole bag of them in my studio. Mm. You yeah. know? So I've been very fortunate, you know, I'm not a rich guy, but I've been successful and I mean, I was one of the first music video directors in the world, right? Yeah. I did the first rap I did the first rap video on M T V.
1: Yeah, this is what I was was heading towards. I mean, you look at your your back catalog of work, and this is something that most people wouldn't be aware of, but some of the music videos, some of the artists you've worked with, Curtis Blow, Tommy Chong, Carlos Santana. I mean, Tommy Chong, obviously, but uh, the stuff- I love Tommy
2: Chong. If you told me when I was 16, when I was smoking pipes of of fucking Durban Poison and surfing and watching Cheech and Chong movies that I was ever going to work with fucking- Tommy Chong, I would have fucking never believed you. I mean, what was that like? It was fucking classic, dude. We just got stoned out of our brain. It was just like when we were little kids, you know? It was fucking amazing. And, I mean, more importantly, it was like, did you think I would ever think that I was going to be having dinner with Bob Dylan, you know, and that kind of shit? Or, or, you know, having Eric Clapton try and steal my model girlfriend away from me when we were filming in the Royal Albert Hall with him and Carol King, you know? It's like, dude, it's been a pretty good ride when I think about it now, you know? I mean, I don't. it's weird because there was a lot of struggles and I had a lot of penniless times. And I don't even know how how I managed to hang on to all this shit. Like, I lost a lot of it. I mean, there's stuff that I lost that I wish I had. But, I mean, there are very few guys my age who've got it back who have the fucking evidence of their life. So, you know, unless they grew up with a trust fund, it would be pretty hard to keep all this shit together the way I have, you know? Mm, I mean, mm. I have fucking film going back to when I was 10 years old. I have the piano from my parents' house. I mean, how the fuck I did it, I don't know, you yeah. know? I, I just kept it together. I, I, You know, me and Anton were very lucky. Uh, he's a great drummer and musician, and we came to New York at the same time, right? And we started out, he would be playing in, a, in bands doing bar mitzvahs, and I would film them in Super 8, because there wasn't video back then. That's it. we still, We were always enterprising, right? Because we didn't have any fucking trust funds. You know, we didn't have any money. we, we I couldn't go back to South Africa. I was an army draft dodger, and I was illegal in America. I had to figure out a way how to fucking survive.
1: Wow. You know, I
2: couldn't go anywhere. I didn't even have a fucking visa to go in and out of America for the longest time. You know, Mate, I was
1: fucked. And there's a blessing in that because it, it, there's nowhere to go but I'll you know, you, there's nothing to go back to. Whoa, so you... Hold
2: on. Hold on a second. No, no, no. Down, there's a lot of, there's a long route down, dude. <laughs> Believe me. It, there's nowhere to go but up until you start going down. Because it's you, like... you,
1: But you, you have to get moving, right? You, you gotta, you gotta make it work. You gotta hustle. And um, when you're hustling creative talents like yourself, um, you know, people pick up on that when someone is desperate but has high work ethic and discipline and and talent because talent comes on the back of work ethic and discipline. And um, but you need that grit, you need that well, lack of the safety a net great, to really get you going, book. I reckon.
2: There's a great book written in I think it was in the sixties or the fifties. I've been down so long. It looks like up to me. I can't remember who was, I think it was uh, fuck who wrote that book. You should look look that up. I, I've been down so long. It looks like up to me. It's one of the beats, one of the beat from the beat generation. I think it's the uh, the 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 brother of Joan Baez's girlfriend, sister, someone like. But he's a very famous writer, right? But you know, there, there is that that you 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 hopefully can rise out of the ashes like a phoenix and and get on top of it. But I mean, for every Bob Dylan, there's just so many. You know Phil Oakes was? Phil Oaks was a was like the rival to Dylan at some point during the uh, sixties, right? Who ended up killing himself because he just wasn't Dylan. He was, you know, Dylan said, he's not a songwriter, he's a journalist. Sure. Yeah, Uh, that's you know, with that sneer, right? But you know, so there's a lot of guys that fell by the wayside. I'm telling you that. It's like, you know. Uh, on the other hand, you got to think Andy Warhol who's another guy that I hung out with. You got to think of what he said. You know, in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes, and if you do the same thing long enough, you're bound to get into fashion. <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs>
2: and, Andy Warhol knew this shit better than anybody, right? So, uh, so there's that. But uh, the funniest thing that I remember is when I bailed out of South Africa. I had a lot of I still have the negatives thank god black and white photographs of um, when I was on my surf trips we would go through this area the trans guy which was this I think I spoke about it last time yeah. which was this attempt this attempt in apartheid to create this self governing quasi black independent state so they could just nation of ship Islam, black a, a kind of deal yeah yeah, yeah just ship not Islamic. black people there just ship ship black people there and leave them in, in poverty. But it turned out that uh, the trans sky where they were sending people to, which is where Mandela was actually born, was on the coastline of Coffee Bay and this incredible surf spots, right, that were back then where, you know, there was nobody out there. I used to surf by myself in these spots infested with Zambezi tiger sharks, right? Wow. You know, like, like you know, we there was a the thing, don't ever stand on the bottom of the of of the ocean around there because the, the sharks these these ambezes embed themselves in the mud under the ocean right and they won't touch you but if you stand them they'll attack you right so if you wiped out in shallow water you just swam you didn't want to fucking ever hit the bottom because you could hit a shark and then you'd be fucking just mauled to death right and we used to surf these places by ourselves or it was insane but oh, yeah. I took photographs of the poverty stricken blacks and you know, what was going on. And when I came to London, when I had finally, you know, exiled myself out of South Africa for 10 years as an army draft dodger, I uh, I, I photographed, um, I took those photographs and sold them to the London Sunday Times. I still have all those negatives. I don't know how the fuck I kept all this shit. I, re- I mean, I lost a lot, but I've got a lot, you know? So I'm fucking grateful that I can sit here and, you know, the Museum of Modern Art in New York bought a bunch of my shit, like a lot of it, and, but... Not, but there was just too, you know, so much. And now I sit back, I'm, I'm like working with Luke. I told you Luke Cheadle and Stevie Dreer. Yeah. That's right. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Putting shows together. You know, it's like, there's a whole, there's a whole group of, of, of what's happened. Guys in their twenties and thirties, there's like intellectual surfing culture has arrived. You know Mm. what I mean? Mm. Even though you still need to read all the fucking things that I just told you about. Right. (laughs) But. But you've obviously had some uh, education in critical theory and uh, and Marxism and 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 and, uh, and and a philosophical framework that we can address these subcultures in, so we don't fall into that feral narcissism uh, that, in the end, has taken the lives of so many interesting guys who. Well, besides Mickey Dora, I don't know how many of them actually had that much more to give. I mean, I'm not that turned on by reading a, a petty bourgeois surfing book, like Waiting for the Barbarians. You know, that doesn't really interest me very much. Well, and was it? I'm Barbarian probably...
1: Days. Barbarian Days. The, Barbarian uh... Days. You're sorry,
2: yeah. Waiting for the Barbarians is by J.M. Um, Cotsey. That's an incredible book. Have you ever read that? I it's haven't. not about surfing. Yeah, oh, yeah. You should read that. Waiting for the Barbarians by Jam Cotsey. It's a... Uh, He's like a Nobel Prize winning South African author who bailed Happy. out of South Africa. I'll but it, yeah. Barbarian Days is just, I don't know, it's just, you know, like it's just got this kind of elitist attitude. You know, like when he he visits South Africa about the same time as I was preparing to leave, you know, in like the early 80s, right? Uh, no, I mean 70s, late 70s. I left South Africa in 76. And he's got this kind of patronizing attitude as if he was the only uh uh anti-South Africa, anti-apartheid thinker in the in the surf world. And I'm going, the fuck is this guy? Me and my friend David Goldberg who went on to become the, the the head of the Institute of Humanities at UC Irvine. I mean, we were risking we'd been in jail for fighting apartheid. I mean, who the fuck is this American talking shit here? You know, I mean, where <laughs> the fuck did he get off? That I mean, it is so patronizing that chapter on Cape Town that it just makes me question the whole book, you know? Again, mm. it's just as, as Bob Dylan would say, it's journalism. It's not pure poetry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> man. Yeah. it's I, I, I've read some of John Pilger's work on the apartheid death squads. uh, You know, some of those Dutch special service maniacs who'd go around and kill anti-apartheid protesters. And, and you know, these. Oh, yeah. I lived through that. Awful, Dude, awful I, shit, I Nazi shit.
2: I remember like. Like student protests in 1972 in St George's Cathedral in Cape Town, which I filmed in Super 8, and I have all that wow. with like fucking those German Shepherd wolfhounds being unleashed on us by the police, right? I mean, just jumping at your neck, dude. It was like I don't know how we we you know the 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 the, the priests of the parish of of, uh, 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 of St. George's Cathedral just pulled us into the church and closed those doors. But a lot of us, especially the black guys, got the beat to sh- beat the shit out of them from by these cops. I mean, it was terrifying. I'm, I'm right now working on a feature film that I'm, that I'm trying to get a SAG waiver for so that I can get out of this fucking strike. You know, I'm not all left-wing and Marxist, by the way. You know, I mean, I'm, I, I think these kind of strike tactics are like 19th century... Kind of labor disputes in a postmodernist uh, Deleuzian world, you know, in in a in, in the world of like the the, the great French writer Paul Virilio, where speed is a function, or Deleuze and Guattari describe the rhizomic aspect of of of, 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 the, of the cultural organism, which is moving in such a viral way that you can't grab it. It's like COVID, you know. You can't <laughs> fight dialectically. You can't fight COVID with one virus. One antivirus, right? Because as you get the antivirus, it mutates into it. it's. Covid is the perfect metaphor for for the the, the postmodernist, post Trumpian universe. That's what it is. It's no, it's no accident that it evolved in this particular moment in time. This virus, right? Mm. This virus. It's not some fucking conspiracy theory bullshit that these fucking weirdo QAnon people believe. It is a pure mutative version of the culture writ small in viral forms it's just like what william blake was writing about when he said i can see the whole world in a grain of sand right that kind of um although that presupposes a kind of archetypal paradigmatic universe which viruses don't but it's still the 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 symbolism of the virus right the fact that there's this death deadly vaccine defying viral organism that can just float through all the defense systems and just continually infect and kill people that's the same way that capitalism has evolved and so the same way that you can't just block a virus by putting up a a vaccine gate you can't stop the screamers and the big, um, global multinational, um, uh, uh, internet corporations like Zuckerberg and, and, Musk, you can't stop their companies like Amazon prime and Netflix. And, uh, you can't just block them and say, okay, we're not going to write any scripts and we're not going to act in any of your movies. So therefore, uh, you'll pay us more money until we do, because the, the rhizomic, which kind of means like a, which means like a kind of multi multiplying uh, bacteriological metaphor for how the capital evolves in this, you know, in this kind of post crypto universe, post cryptocurrency universe, right? Where just massive accumulations of capital happen in random places, right? And people just get enormously wealthy and powerful really fast, right? So it's kind of like trying to, squeeze mercury you can't hang on to mercury it just shoots out and one you grab it it goes in another direction by that same token you can't fight them by blocking them because you can't block them you've got to fight them by working from inside them and infecting them you've got to become like the virus itself right so the most effective tool against the strike, ironically, is a movie like Oppenheimer or Barbie that grosses, much as I have no desire to see Barbie, right? There's nothing in that movie that interests me at all except the fact that it grossed a million dollars at exactly that moment when the unions are trying to block all creativity uh, from the, the streamers and the producers and everybody in the hope that starving them will give them will give them an opportunity to get more money but you can't starve them because they've got a huge backlog of material that go, that by the time they exhaust the backload of material the the the, the 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 union members will be starving it's the only way that you can conjure up an attractive scenario that will that will invoke a desire to terminate the strike is when they see how much money a movie like barbie makes and they're going "Ooh, well we can't do that until the strike ends so maybe that's a desire that to end the strike you see it's like it, it's like a kind of infestation from the interior of their organism
1: mm, mm. it's a great take on the strike i mean Ah, uh, yeah, and it it makes sense. There's a, a lot of theory around you know the, the best way to fight back against late stage capitalism is to accrue as much capital as you can and then if release can, it
2: pretty it's pretty hard to accrue a lot of capital, but hey, in ethical I'm ways, it, it really
1: is. It's so hard. And uh, well, you
2: think you think Owen Wright, you think Owen right is a classic example of ah uh, of how to fight late stage capitalism.
1: Uh, not at all. I don't think that's uh, his concern whatsoever. But uh, it, it is mine, um, and uh, there, there is that that line of thought that it, it really, you know, a do- every dollar is a vote. So the more dollars you have, so am, I gonna a, to am I going to get?
2: Am I going to get a percentage of this podcast when it comes out because it's going to be so good,
1: mate? Well, I still have. I want 11... to
2: make sure this. I think we got some good shit, y'all. you You got to do a good edit on this.
1: Man, I was actually just thinking uh, it'd be great. I mean, it's up to you. But if you can get any of those uh, black and white negatives or any of that Super 8 footage from the protest, any of that stuff, if it's lying around, sling it over and we'll slip it's it not in. not lying around.
2: I mean, got to, I'm, I'm like so... My problem is that, you know, for all my protestations against capitalism, i got to work. And right now I'm about to, you know, because the strike is happening, I don't have another movie going. And I'm just waiting to see whether the funding is coming through on the sunny thing. I have to, you know, my, my go-to job over the years has been music videos and and TV commercials. And I have mm. to put together a whole bunch of stuff for for uh for this big commercial proposal for this client. So I don't necessarily know that I have the time in the next week or so to do anything but that do that. You know, because I'm sort of like a a one man show here, you know, like my fucking assistant that was she's so great fucked off to Costa Rica to go surfing. Well, so tonight. I don't, I'm gonna hook Hopefully she's back. I, I kind of really need her to go That's through. All this fucking shit. feral narcissist! What's she doing? Yeah, she's a. Yeah, she's she's very talented. She she does photos for that um that girl surfing magazine, whatever it's called, uh, the
1: new one. What's the new one? Ms. Ocean. I don't know what it is. I don't know. Man, the sunny film. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, we're you know I've obviously accrued
2: a crude and large amount of a large archive. You know I've been filming sunny for. God knows, 12, 15 years, right? So I have great interviews with him, including the last interviews that were ever done with him. And actually some of the last interviews that we ever done with Andy Irons, you know, a lot of people died on that, on that project, Andy, Sonny, Marvin Foster, um, uh, Dane Kieloa, uh Buttons, uh, Brock Little. I, I did, I got everybody in, in, in great interviews, right? So, cause they were all Sonny's friends, you know, and, uh so um uh you know we're and I've got various permutations and edits of it. Derek Derek and Chaz did an interview with me. There's a have you do you know about this um this Instagram page, Free Sunny Garcia Two? Oh you, uh, you were telling
1: me about it in the live. Yeah last you should podcast. see
2: that. So you, you should see that and you can um So uh, there, just quickly,
1: a... well the premature demise of all these Hawaiian greats, like do you have any take on that? Well, I John Shamuka is of, uh, another one that is in that list. John,
2: John, I have I feel with John as well. I mean, there's a lot of I mean, these are for the most part indigenous Hawaiians, right? And they come from a culture of of of, of cultural appropriation and 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 colonialism, and they they're there, uh, without the critical uh, apparatus to deal with that. And uh, it's a very tough, hard scrabble culture, even though surfing is the uh, traditional. Sport in Hawaii, and it's it's, it's like uh, you know it's it's uh, it, it's an indigenous c- cultural, um, religious and spiritual activity. It it's it's hardly been commodified to the degree that it should have been, and it's in fact been appropriated by, you know, all of those white colonial surfers who came from Australia and South Africa and filmed the ASP, and you know, it's all pretty much. Uh, discussed in you know in uh, there's quite a bit of it, although it's from a different perspective in Sean Thompson's movie that he made. But I can't remember what it was called. There was that movie about uh, you know when, uh, you know when they were all getting beat up by Eddie. Yeah, Rockman busting everyone, down the door, busting down the door exactly. But I mean, the, the difference between my perception of that and Sean's is that you know I see the you know the, the only door that was getting bust down was the fucking door of the the door of you know the door of of the Hawaiians' natural heritage right that was being culturally appropriated and turned into uh, a lawn tennis association i mean that's what that's about right you know turning it into a into a into a into a, a, a business enterprise that used the sport as its kind of product brand and activity but didn't acknowledge the uh indigenous roots nor did it don't know were there any indigenous champions i mean certainly G- dane kielo should have been like world champion many more times than mark richards don't you think
1: oh i man, mean
2: never uh... won one world title did you ever see dane kielo surf at that time it was insane
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a, a magician at backdoor and and PowerPoint.
2: Never and Marvin Foster. None of those guys won anything. They didn't win the fucking world title. The world titles were all won by white guys,
1: until mm-hmm. until
2: until Sonny until Sonny and Derek Ho came along. There were no real competitors coming close to 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 to, to all the white guys. You know, mm-hmm. white blonde straight Sonny talks about that very clearly in the film. That's what the film's about. So the film is definitely a, a trilogy of, you know, the first part of the trilogy is Sea of Darkness, dealing with that feral narcissism and the origins of of the surf industry and uh, you know surf culture and its kind of divergence between soul surfing and capitalism. And then the second the second part really is the Sonny Garcia movie, mm-hmm. which deals with Hawaiian cultural appropriation and uh, and uh, the exploitation of an indigenous culture for uh the self-aggrandizement of white blonde australians and americans and then the third part would be heavy water nathan's film which is about postmodernist surfing right and uh how the the kind of feral narcissist culture reasserts itself in a kind of crazy urban ghettoized um speed metal death punk rock kind of drug-infested skateboard surfing culture manifested by jay adams and christian fletcher
1: i love it the mike obovitz box set are you serious dude i I love the that is a really coherent narrative thread that ties those three films together i I guess the one thing though uh the one thing i would say you know guys like rabbit mr these kind of uh poster boys of the asp (laughs) these guys you know Mr. Son of a used car salesman from working class in Newcastle, a port city. Rabbit, son of a single mom who you know grew up.
2: No, I love. A- hold, don't get me wrong. I'm not casting aspersions on these guys. Everybody has to make a living. And I fucking love Rabbit, and believe me, Rabbit's done as much heroin as anybody has. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Uh, yeah, but you know, all these guys are cool. You know, Mark Richards was a fantastic surfer. I'm just saying, ultimately, and we they were the poor. Porch-
1: they were poor people. Who, who, yeah, uh... yeah, yeah,
2: no, no. When we look at the broad sweep of history, I'm not knocking Sean Thompson. Dude, Sean Thompson surfed fucking backdoor pipeline on a single film. In I mean, Sean's cousin Michael Thompson, who was my friend and who I adored and who I spent many great hours snorting cocaine with, was an incredible fucking surfer, dude. To my mind, he was the best guy at backdoor of his period, right? At 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 pipe, backhand at pipe. He was just nuts, right? And he started gotcha. Right? Of course, he was yeah, like yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Great punk rock innovator, and that he's exactly gotcha. gotcha! Incredible label, uh, so good. Wolfgang Block, uh, the team, is- amazing, yeah, the amazing. design,
2: everything. I mean, Mike was it was one of the most brilliant guys. Sean's no slouch either; he's very smart. And his brother Paul is an old surfing buddy of mine. So I'm not knocking these people. I'm just showing the lay of the land. I'm just saying there was this white blonde. Australian, South African group of guys who appropriated indigenous culture to try and turn it into a kind of capitalist cultural institution, along the lines of Formula One racing or uh, professional tennis. That's what they did. I'm not mm. saying it's good or bad,
1: right? Mm, it's mm, just mm,
2: the, so the opposite box set is is still can still be enjoyed by people who don't think. <laughs>
1: I love it, man. It, it, it's really fascinating. You, you've laid out three classical surfing archetypes here, and I don't think anyone could dispute them. You've got the feral narcissist, your you Mickey Doras, your you, you Travis Potters. Uh, you've got this- Mike like, Boyum. Mike Boyham. You have this uh, indigenous, like, uh, traditional take on surfing from the, the native Hawaiians, uh, the, the native Peruvians. Um, and then you yeah. have- Felipe the-
2: Poma, Sonny Garcia- Derek Ho, Marvin Foster, Dane Kialoa.
1: Yep, yep. The Duke. Like, and then you have uh the capitalizers, the, the those who well, no, want no, no, we to make a the living off surfing.
2: We got the postmodernists, the rock and roll guys, the guys ah. who come straight straight out of the ghetto street culture, yes and and shooting up speed and heroin speedballs and fucking <laughs> you know you know no fucks given, covered in tattoos beating up gay guys, doing whatever, just pure transgression, right? And just taking surfing and skateboarding, literally to new heights, taking it off the concrete and into the air, taking it out the water and into the air. And that's Jay Adams. And that's uh, Christian Fletcher. And with a little bit of help from Martin Potter and Matt Archibald, but they were really the two spearheaded it in the gnarliest way. And didn't give a fuck about competitive surfing. And, you know, Christian Fletcher is no fucks given to this very day. He doesn't care about a fucking thing. He just, you know, he is Mad Max, you know. The the thing that made Christian Fletcher the happiest with, in terms of our relationship was when he found out I was making a movie with Mel Gibson. Dude, that fucking turned him on, dude. He called me from some desolate location somewhere in Southeast Asia on the Philippines, wherever the fuck he was, surfing some barrel by himself you know and like just said i don't even think he said hey mike i just want to tell you mel's my fucking hero <laughs> oh
1: shit yeah i can imagine why uh they both love a fiery fusillade tirade rant uh the pair of them and uh i mean i'm glad you picked me up on that because that was that's the fourth archetype we missed one of the archetypes and that is a very critical surfing archetype um and the, the 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 fourth then being the the, the capitalists the, the the squeaky clean on the weighty box yeah that's the surfing.
2: Bruce Raymonds the Bruce Raymonds the, the Martin Dailies the Bob Magnites you know the guys trying to trying to you know, cellophane wrap, surf tourism and surf culture and uh, surf clothes and garments and sell it to the masses and in the end what happens if they're lucky their dream comes true and they get bought out by Walmart or some other big ass fucking corporation. They go public and all of those beautiful. The dream is complete. The dream is complete. We've sold out completely. That's where we're at, you know? And And Mickey Dora is
1: one end of the spectrum and that's the other end of the spectrum. And the um, other
2: end of the spectrum and everything else that comes in between can be found in my movies.
1: I love it, Mike. Mate, uh All right, Can I go
2: surfing now? It's, it's you like can go
1: surfing far, now. And I'm missing my tide, and I want to go.
2: I got myself. I scored myself. A kind of Ryan Birch, Harrison Roach style. Uh, you know, if you can't beat him, join him. Like a nine nine six, kind of weird. You one of those pig longboards? You know, like a like a big they're kind of nice because they're not as easy to ride as a regular longboard.
1: It's yeah. The, like the a... capitalist wave pig longboard where you can just gorge on more than you deserve. Get no, more waves. Like, has got
2: a big, this, this has got the, the hip, the, the wide part is on the tail with a pin tail and wow. the nose is narrow. So it's a lot harder to ride. It's a single pin, but boy, it goes good when you get a good one. Fuck it. So I'm, I'm doing that because the surf's just too small to ride a real board. It's like two to three feet right now. It's like oh, tiny.
1: Good on you, man, for having so the I'm, versatility so in your quiver. I'm
2: cross-stepping like a girl, you know? I'm just like ba- ballerina all the way up and down the board. So I mate, want to go do that right now. Surf and is then, where you uh, find
1: it, as Lopez says. And uh, absolutely. absolutely legendary, mate. What a career. I'll, I'll be fascinated and, and hopeful to catch up with you again in the future. But man uh you know from making films of mel gibson and steven seagal through to the greatest surf documentary ever made that's never been seen uh and a couple that have heavy water and i can't wait for this uh the sunny garcia film hopefully that drops all the music films mate uh all the the cultural analysis and the uh touring through the the doldrums of london new york city uh an absolute urban grime fest it's a magical existence mate so uh full credit to you loved every minute of this and uh mate connect uh again in the future hopefully
2: yeah yeah just you need any more just call me you know just look at the swell charts and if there's no swell happening it's looking flat i'm always happy to talk if i'm not shooting a commercial or something or doing a movie you know um just try i just want to try and get transcripts of all these fucking a podcast and things I've done because that's going to be how I can write my autobiography.
1: Easy, so, mate. You know, we can we can figure something out all. there.
2: Save it all. Hey, if you want to get a catch up on on and and see some clips from the Sunny Garcia thing, then you should look at Free Sunny Garcia Two. And on one of their posts is uh, they they subclipped uh, um, an interview that Chaz and and Derek did with me on Beach Grip. Yeah, uh, on Sunny God maybe you can find it in the Beach Crit archive. I've got a look. some really good footage from the Sunny God The thing and it would be kinda of cool. You could put it in this podcast too.
1: Mate, hundred percent. I'm absolutely fascinated uh, to see all that and hear all that. So yeah, well done again. Let's
2: stay in touch, Jed. Okay, keep me posted.
1: We'll do Mike. Take care, brother. Hope you get a couple.
2: I, I will. Don't worry. Even if I have to you know take out a few people along the way, you can be sure <laughs> that uh, it's not It's not beneath me to snake, you know, like, you know, Malibu's like Kira, right? If you don't fucking go for it, you ain't going to get one.
1: <laughs> snake or be snaked, my friend. Rip in.
2: That's how I live. All right, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Jed.
1: See you, Bella. Take care.